My pet monster. He's bigger than big. When he fights battles, he always wins. And he's your friend, too. He breaks his chains. Put him on you and break away, too. With my pet monster, you're busting loose. He's big. And scary. And helps people, too. And he's your friend, too. My pet monster plays all day. Tough. Awesome. Looking great. And all your friends will want him for their friend, too. My pet monster has breakaway chains from Amtoy and American Greetings Company. podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday and this is episode 128. This is the beginning of our October Halloween celebration when we are reviewing the Child's Play franchise. <laughs> and on Horror Movie Podcast, what you typically get is in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shock Becker, outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh, look. You stay here. I have to go tinkle. <laughs> I just, you know what? Even when I try to anticipate what you're gonna say, Wolfman, I, I don't, I, I don't even come close to guessing. Yeah, I don't think I, <laughs> so. I, I don't think I'd ever guess that one. That's a special talent you have, I think, to just throw me off. All right. Well, welcome tonight. I'm so happy that Josh is alive and well. He made it back from Alaska. Yes. <laughs> People think we're probably goofing around here, but like Dave and I were genuinely afraid for his well-being. Yeah, I, he, he dropped off the radar for almost a week there. <laughs> you know, well, you I was sending yeah. messages, you were sending emails and we were getting texts every now and again. And then all of a sudden, boom. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was genuinely scared for my well-being as well. It was pretty sketchy situations. Uh, I went in thinking it would be sketchy for one reason. It ended up being sketchy for a completely different reason. And uh, yeah, I, I was there for 15 days ultimately. So my my plan was to be a minimum of five, maximum of 10. Wow. And um, after three days, I was kind of done and ready to be, <laughs> be be coming back. And I ended up being there for 15. So wow, it was kind of crazy. Well, and the listeners are going to be excited to hear this, I think. Josh has some very um, compelling campfire tales, which for those who don't know, those are essentially real-life horror stories <laughs> from this trip especially. So, Josh, of course, we love you, and we want to make sure you were well and alive. But also, I was also hoping you would make it back for selfish reasons so we could hear your campfire tales. Yeah, it would have been less compelling if you had to read about it in uh, the Fairbanks Daily News Miner than. Uh... <laughs> well, well, can I give you a con? I'm going to give a confession here. This is a real confession on the podcast, and I hope you don't think ill of this because you know that I'm a journalist at heart, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I actually, because in our previous recordings, you had talked about what exactly you were going to be doing, and I just saved that just in case. I mean, I was hoping, heaven forbid, that nothing would happen to you. But if we had to explain to our audience that something had 
gone horribly awry, then I considered, you know, a little bit of Werner Herzog, maybe um, Grizzly Man, like, you know, <laughs> relaying or maybe playing was, a little clip. I would have been totally fine with that. And, fa- and frankly, I kept my camera rolling during times that... <laughs> Did it make sense to keep it rolling because I wanted to leave behind at least some kind of grizzly man record of, of what had taken place? <laughs> yes. Um, and, and also, just uh, as another little side note, I really figured out what it would be like to be in a found footage horror movie. As I was filming the whole time, I thought, oh, this is interesting. We always debate, would they actually keep the camera rolling this time? And yet, here I am. I'm trying to get composed shots in this moment. So that was also an interesting experiment. Oh, man. Interesting. You make if us. You made it a movie. If you made it a movie, people would be like, "Why is he, he would? No one would keep the camera rolling." Yeah, <laughs> but but juncture. the truth of the matter is, a documentary filmmaker would keep a camera would. rolling. Yeah, so, there you go. Very true. Josh, you make very us true. proud, and I'm I'm being a hundred percent sincere. I'm very proud of that, and so thank you. Uh, so everybody, stick around. So like, even if Child's Play isn't your bag, which you know, this first one, I think I think people could stick around for this review at the very least. We're going to have some stuff afterwards. So not only will we have Josh's Campfire Tales, we're going to get Josh's take on it, which we have all been anticipating, actually. Mm. So You know, if, if Child's Play is not your bag, it's going to be a long October for you. <laughs> but I think... Uh, <laughs> yes. But I think, you know, I, I, I'm actually excited to cover it. I, I think we have the opportunity because the new cult of chucky movie is coming out to discuss Mm -hmm. this franchise which honestly to be perfectly honest i don't think we would have gotten around to for a very long time right you know i think this is actually forcing us a little bit to look at a franchise that a lot of our listeners love that um just because the three of us aren't huge fans of we may never have gotten to so i'm actually kind of happy this happened and the other option was saw as the new saw legacy is coming out and um, the votes came in on the on the side of Child's Play, but you know Josh Stolberg, who wrote the new Saw movie, is a friend of the show, so I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that one this mm-hmm. October as well. Absolutely. Absolutely, it's funny this this year it came down to okay, which franchise kind of it was almost like uh, every other time we were excited. This time it's just like okay, well, which one is. <laughs> the least you know or the, or the best of the you know it's interesting yeah. it's interesting yeah. it was nobody was jumping up and down about either one of these and i'm thinking there are other franchises we could get to but i don't know that they would fill all of october you know we're kind of running out of the longer ones well uh, and, and to be honest though dave i mean it, maybe it's the considering the sequels podcast in me um you know, I always get a little bit excited about reviewing a franchise, even if it's like something that I'm not super excited about. Like uh, last March before my surgery, I was going to try to do these reviews of uh, the Leprechaun movies. But then mm. but then my my vigor and excitement <laughs> ran out quickly <laughs> as I was trying to work through those puppies. But but yeah, so, yeah and, and so I might try a, a little something like that in our written reviews which we'll we'll talk about here coming up here before the end of the show i might try something like that along the lines of saw and i'll probably fail but you know we'll see i thought i thought you meant leprechaun no (laughs) (laughs) to hell with leprechaun at least until next march maybe but i'll tell you this one thing i am genuinely trying to do because i decided recently it's like you know what uh, we got to get in some, we got to start working in, we're getting toward the end of the year, right? And we got to start working in some horror movies, catching up as much as possible, preparing for our end of the year list. And I, and I remembered 
that I had that um, Jay of the Dead's five minutes of horror little thing, which was just designed to kind of help drive traffic to this site. It was like this this SoundCloud thing. And I only put out one review on there, which was (laughs) pathetic. Absolutely. And Josh even made me this nice little um, thing that you could click on and go to it. Anyways, uh, um, to kind of kick that off again, because I'm going to be trying to get that going and I'll link it in the show notes so you can go to it. I'm, I've done a little five-minute episode of the 10 essential American horror movies that best typify the genre. And um, the, the reason that came up is because some gal at work is getting into horror and she's like, well, I haven't, I've hardly seen anything. What movies must I see? This is uh, Halloween month coming up. What should I see? And I thought, wow, this is a great challenge. So if you want to hear that, that 10 list... It's just what I think best represents, like if we did a time capsule of what we were going to do to represent horror cinema, I picked 10 and I committed. So you could check that out. (laughs) And I have a a feeling you had a hard time narrowing that down. Yes, it was awful. And plus, in order to record it within five minutes, you know, there's not a lot of chatter about it either. So it's a a serious commitment. So anyway, I hope people will check that out so you can argue with me and I challenge all the horror uh, listeners out there all the horror fans try to put together a list like that it's it's more challenging than you might think so oh, yeah anyway so that's our agenda we're gonna we're gonna start out with our review our of child's play and then we'll go into some campfire tales and Josh's take on a, a, a couple things maybe and then wrap it up for the night so let's move into our feature review of child's play from 1988. Everyone has a birthday they'll always remember. Can we open my presents now, Mommy? A good guy! I knew it! (laughs) I, I'm Chucky. He's something, isn't he? This is Andy's. Time for bed, Andy. Good night, baby. Good night, Aunt Maggie. Good night, Chucky. Josh, since you're the welcome back kid, do you want to do the honors? Sure. Child's Play is a 1988 film. It was directed by Tom Holland and is based on a screenplay by Don Mancini, John LaFia, and Tom Holland. Um, Don Mancini wrote the original screenplay and, um, you know, it was a, it was kind of like a work for, or it was a spec project, I should say. And, it was picked up by um, David Kirshner to produce. And it was originally titled Batteries Not Included, was his original title for the film. <laughs> and then he he found out about the Spielberg project, so he changed it to Bloody Buddy was, uh, was the title he gave it. Um, I'm not sure who would eventually titled it Child's Play, but David Kirshner... Got Tom Holland attached. Tom Holland, who at that time, you know, was riding the wave of having directed Fright Night, um, which was, you know, obviously a, a classic horror film uh, just a couple of years earlier. And so, you know, Tom Holland himself did some rewrites of the script. You know, in, in Mancini's original version of the screenplay, uh, Chucky was much different. You know, they it was it was kind of a you know, they talk about the the Frankenstein moment, which brings Chucky to life. In the original screenplay, it was um, a Blood Brothers situation. You know, the Chucky doll was um, 
lifelike to the point that it had blood and when if it got cut then it would bleed and kids had to get band-aids for it the chucky brand band-aids for their doll and um the idea was that this little boy cuts his own finger and uh, and becomes blood brothers with the doll and then that kind of brings the doll to life but in a way where the doll is carrying out um kind of the id Mm-hmm. desires of the little boy in the way that you know i was i was asking you guys do you remember this during our uh, killer pets episode we had talked about monkey shines operating in that way and and uh, bad milo operating in that way where this thing kind of comes to life unbeknownst to you and kills your enemies um that was basically what child's play had initially been intended to be um it was called bloody buddy because this doll was based very much on the my buddy doll that was big <laughs> yes. for kids i remember that and, so well i mean that was and it looks yeah. a lot like it i'm surprised that there weren't lawsuits well there were several things happening you know it was it was the era uh, you know when when we were kids of um the talking doll the one i always wanted of course was teddy ruxpin that was uh, the talking bear that told you stories but there was there was my buddy um, and my buddy had a little sister called Kid Sister. Mm-hmm. There was Cricket, which was a little brother, was named Buddy. Or sorry, was named Corky. And the Chucky doll is kind of an amalgamation of Corky and Buddy. Basically, it's Corky's face and hair color with Buddy's haircut and clothes. <laughs> and if you mix and match those things together, you essentially get Chucky. Um, but it, what happens here in the story is that there's a mother played by Catherine Hicks, who's kind of the single mother who works at a department store and doesn't have much money. And she has this little boy, um, Andy, played by Alex Vincent, who it, it's funny. Also, as you're thinking about this, Andy, you know, from Toy Story, I wondered if that was uh, <laughs> a nod to this film at all about the, the toys that come to life. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have uh, Andy, the little boy, and he really wants, you know, a Chucky doll. Or it's not called Chucky. It's um, it's called uh, Good Guys. Good guy, a good guy doll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he really wants a good guy. And which um, is ironic, there, right? Because that's like the perfect ironic name for he this. He is not a good guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, indeed, he is not. Indeed, no. It's uh, it's much like yeah, Johnny Fairplans or whatever. But anyway, um, so he wants this good guy doll. His mom can't afford it. And she ends up buying this doll from this, from essentially a hobo in a back alley situation. Her friend convinces her there's a great sale going on. And it's <laughs> what it is is a homeless guy selling toys out of a shopping cart in the alleyway. <laughs> um, but the night previous to this, uh, you know, a serial killer played by Brad Dourif is being pursued by Chris Sarandon, uh, Mike Norris, a police officer. There's a great shootout situation in a toy store. And, uh, you know, Charles Lee Ray, played by Duruff, is mortally wounded. And in his final moments, he enacts a voodoo ceremony of sorts and transfers his soul into this little doll. And so the doll that uh, Karen brings home to Andy is this demon doll with the soul of a serial killer. And, uh, you know, that is not revealed until a little ways into the film, which I did not know. And it's interesting to see the way they, they play that. It's not as much it was as originally was intended by Don Mancini's screenplay, 
um, in that version, you know, we're meant to wonder if, if Andy is the one committing all these heinous acts. Mm-hmm. They don't play with that as as much in this film, but they do a little bit. And essentially, yeah, this doll comes to life and it becomes this killer little doll. And as we mentioned with, you know, Freddy Krueger and Nightmare on Elm Street being kind of ubiquitous in the 80s, I think we see the same thing with Chucky. Chucky is a major pop culture figure um, in the late 80s and early 90s. And, um, you know, this is one of the few films, as we mentioned, that went on to spawn a really strong in terms of number franchise of horror films uh-huh. so much so that there's yep. a new one coming out uh, in just a couple days here i wanted to write something that was a dark satirical look about the world of children's marketing like any horror fan i had seen the talking tina twilight zone and i was a fan of that killer doll concept but it occurred to me that that had never been done in such a way where you could treat the doll as a full-fledged character i had been in london with my wife and i had read a book called the victorian dollhouse murders because i was fascinated by dolls. They scared me. And I said to uh, the woman that was running development for me at the time uh, that I would love to do something with dolls. And she said that there was a script about six months ago written by a young, talented writer, but it had not sold. The first thing that happened was David attached Tom Holland to the project. Tom Holland had written and directed Fright Night. And that was really good. So, I, you know, I was very excited. For a long time, one of the most frightening memories I had was as a small boy being afraid of my toys. Then there's been all the publicity recently on these new animatronic dolls and the idea of writing a story about a little six-year-old boy who insists his doll is alive I thought was fascinating. Chucky is a doll. He's made of plastic and stuffing. Now you don't really think that Chucky is alive, do you? It was really fun to make it something dark and evil. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? Yeah, that's, uh, that's the basic setup for Child's Play, and I, I think it is iconic culturally. And I know that as many people as kind of were rolling their eyes that this is what we were covering this October, I think there were just as many in our listenership who were really excited that we were covering these films. And I, I, I wanted to come to this with a really open mind because uh-huh. Chucky was not one of my favorite things, but I really wanted to do my best to um, to kind of – experience this the way a fan might so mm-hmm. right. yeah well the and th- the truth be told honestly this first film is i think a lot stronger than some people would give it credit for i mean it's it, it's so many things in one i mean it's a um it's like a creepy doll movie right evil doll movie it's a it's kind of a possession movie or like a, a haunting type of movie there's that in it I mean, it's a slasher, obviously, it's that. I mean, so it's got a lot of different elements to it, which I appreciate. Just a a couple quick facts on this. This was released in 1988. It was November 9th. And by the way, that was a Wednesday, which is really interesting because, you know, usually they they wouldn't do like a Wednesday release on a film, like unless it's like a huge summer movie or like right at like Thanksgiving time if it's leading up to Thanksgiving or Christmas or something and they're trying to get a long box office weekend. So this is kind of interesting to me. And that same weekend, you know, th- this was ended up being the box office winner, which is really weird. And this was in theaters for six weeks, if you can, if you can believe that. Um, 
And yeah. what, what's cool, I was looking at what else was it was competing against that weekend because that interests oh. me. It was Iron Eagle 2, um, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, Ernest Saves Christmas, and then a movie called oh. A Cry in the Dark, which is the Meryl Streep, Sam Neill movie. Oh, yeah, the Dingo Ate Her Baby. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's uh, right. it's no wonder that this was such a big hit. It had very little competition coming out of that. that that's really true, actually. Yeah, and then yeah, um, mm-hmm. so, well, this was a firestorm of controversy around the release of this film as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk you about know, there, that. Yes. Now there were parent protests and and groups protesting this film, and uh, there was there's a, a famous story about uh, people going to boycott the film at actually the MGM studio and. Uh, and the news was covering it, and one of the producers um, went down and talked to them for ten minutes, and the and the crowd went away, and the news people were kind of disappointed about that. But uh, the little news tri- or the little trivia thing that I read about that said it's it was unclear whether they were threatened or paid off or what exactly <laughs> happened <laughs> during that that brief interaction, but um. Yeah, there, there, there was a, a lot of people that were unhappy about this. And really, Child's Play is one of those films, and, and it's really this entire series that has been blamed for the movies made me do it thing. And there have been several murders that have been linked to these films. Um, really, some really disturbing. I mean, obviously, any murder is disturbing, but some situations yeah. of torture that are really horrific. I think one that is linked specifically to this film, but I think up to five or six that have been connected to this franchise. And so I thought that's something we would save for the franchise wrap up at the end um, and talk about some of those real life cases that were linked to it. But absolutely. This has been mm-hmm. a controversial series. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's well, and there are, and we'll talk about this later in the review and, and what we'll do for people. I mean, I assume, right. You got to assume probably everybody listening to this has seen this movie, right. Or, or if you haven't, I hope that we can convince you and maybe we'll try to save our, our spoiler type talk till later in the review. If we can, if we can do that, no, but, we should absolutely do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause just in case, yep. just, just in case people haven't seen it, but uh, yeah, cause there are things that happen later in the film that are um, genuinely like on a deep disturbing level. But um, the thing is, even though this is the concept, like the heart of what this movie is, it's like, okay, this killer um, puts his a spirit or soul or whatever inside of this doll, and then it's a killer doll. I mean, it's what you would call a classic bad movie, quote unquote. But it's actually executed very well. And 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 my argument to why this works, I I think the number one reason this film works is because they take time to protect Chucky, like like the image, the imagery of this doll attacking and killing. They, they give us enough time to be convinced of this happening, that this scenario is happening. And, and they cast it in a creepy light. Like they'll give us the, the, you know, the traditional subjective point of view where we see the killer's perspective. Right. And some creepy things happen where you're like, oh, okay, this, this is a little bit creepy. And then later when you do see the doll animated and moving, it's not absurdly funny like you're expecting you know, because they've already established, yeah, this is a pretty uh, serious killer who's lethal. You know, what do you say, Dave? I, I agree. I mean this this is the, this is the one uh, 
obviously being the first. A lot of times in a franchise, the first movie is always the best. Um, but this one, I think, what really impressed me about it is pretty much everything about the Chucky doll, from the special effects that brought it to life to Brad Dorif. I mean, I think that they got uh, the perfect voice um, uh, for this doll. You know, obviously he plays a killer. He has a small role at the beginning uh, when he sort of does the ceremony and uh, enters the doll, as it were. But Brad Dorff is just, for me, he's always an interesting actor. I always perk up a little bit when I see him in, in, in anything, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, going back to, like, Billy Bibbit and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and pretty much everything after that, he's just that type of actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like what he was able to do with, um, with this doll, mostly just, you know, obviously voicing it. Uh, but then it's, it's the doll it's, itself. And, and the movie does go into some, some dark territory. I mean, uh, the, I think what shocked me really the first time I saw it, I mean, there's several things in the movie that shocked me and I won't go into exactly what happens in this scene. I mean, it is early, but I won't say everything, but there's a scene where the little boy just comes, comes up and says, Chucky says the bitch got what she deserved or something along those lines, you <laughs> yeah. know? And you're just kind of like, whoa. I mean, this is a real little kid who I don't think is the strongest child actor. It's not, but he's very no. young, too. You know, he's, he's definitely he's, he is categorically not the strongest <laughs> child actor. No, no, not, a, not at <laughs> definitely all. Definitely not the that's, strongest. But he's that's cute. Being, that's being kind. That's being kind. But yes. Yeah, yeah, and he, sympathetic, too. I mean, right? Okay. Sure. Oh, yeah. No, he's sympathetic. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um. But for me, this movie is really about about how they bring this this doll to life. I, I thought it was, and you're right. We don't see much of it for a while. There's just these hints, and like you said, the POVs and 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 things like that. But then uh, there's this one moment where it's just like <laughs> they let it go, and <laughs> it's pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's a the first big kill in the movie. There are arguably other kills, I suppose, before that. Um, but the big, the first big kill in the film um, has a really cool slow motion shot. You guys know what I'm talking about mm-hmm. during it. I just thought that was incredible. I thought this is one yeah. of the coolest shots of this type of I've seen. It goes on for so long. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's just really cool. I like I like the yeah. way it was it was shot, and I, I think Tom Holland does a really good job about. Um, the way the way this is directed in terms of pulling off this little killer, you know, yes. and I they, they they did this with a few different a few different ways. They had an animatronic Chucky doll. They had a little person who portrayed Chucky, and they also had a little girl, like a a little regular sized human child playing playing the doll. But it, they, I feel like the animatronic is so strong in this. I mean, it, it, on one hand, it doesn't have to look lifelike because it's a doll. So because right. it's plastic, it doesn't, I think the job is probably easier. But I will say, uh, even, you know, for the time period, I was really impressed by the way Chucky worked. Now, they did mention that the little person that sometimes played Chucky, they could not match his actions with the doll. So what they did instead was have the little person act like the animatronic doll, if that makes sense. So yeah. they had him mm-hmm. try to move oh. to imitate the doll, to anima- uh, imitate the animatronic movements when uh-huh. he was playing, which I thought was really smart. They also used a set that was like 30 t- 30% bigger than normal so that the little person looked smaller when they shot those scenes. That's brilliant. That's a little person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
super smart. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely well done. And, and see, you wouldn't expect that, right? Like when you hear of, um, I think it was from the same year, right? A movie like Killer Clowns from Outer Space. You're like, okay, mm-hmm. this is a very absurd. And, and even though I love the look of those clowns and that, I mean, it, it's still very uh, campy and, you know, kind of weird. And so you would expect mm-hmm. that from this film too. But the execution mm-hmm. is very serious. Like they took it seriously like a, a genuine horror film. And that's right. what I love. I mean, this could have been, it could have gone the uh, comedy horror direction, which we'll see more of that later in the franchise. But but in right, this one, right. it's pretty much pretty dead serious, which I love about it. I think it works on a lot of levels. I mean, again, this was something from my childhood. So I remember being extremely creeped out by, by Chucky. And for me, I think there were, I was kind of analyzing why. I think one of those reasons is that it's your size as a kid. It's it's this little tiny killer, mm-hmm. and it's a thing that, and I think that's one of the reasons that the parents groups and people protested and blamed it for children committing crime. But I think it's interesting because it does freak you out. That imagine something your size attacking. Um, imagine something your size doing these heinous things. It was it was really freaky, and I think it falls into that uncanny valley as well, where the doll looks just lifelike enough that it looks so weird to see it doing some of the things that it does. Yes. You know, I think there's a, there's a scene where Chucky's fighting with the mother and he, she goes to bite her and that the way his face looks is just like, ah, like that is just, right. so uncanny. <laughs> and, and the other moment that really always freaks me out is, um, the initial drop and roll, if, if you know what I'm talking about. Yes, it's yes. like, <laughs> yeah, it's so otherworldly looking. I, that haunted me as a child. Like I remember that so clearly mm-hmm. that image of it dropping and rolling. I'm just like, ah, like that just, it, <laughs> it freaks me out to this day when I saw that, um, when I rewatched just for this, I freaked the heck out of me. I agree with that actually. And, and yeah, I, I remember like just watching it last night again, revisiting it. Um, when that's, when that moment happens, the drop and roll moment, I'm like, Oh, that is weird because you know, in that moment, there's a little bit of, you know, it's like, what's going on here for the character? And then it's like, okay, yeah, something wouldn't happen like that. Like in terms of like physics, that probably wouldn't be the case if you just dropped a regular inanimate object <laughs> down. But the the role is very lifelike. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, there are a lot of things in the film, I think, that just look weird. And that adds to the terror. For me, you know, just like, ooh, mm-hmm. that looks strange. And I, yeah, I think it is that uncanny element. I agree. And, you know, um, like in speaking of that, like e- even though we, we talked about some of the design origins of, of Chucky, like, uh, you know, later in the film, as his appearance, um, you know, changes a little bit. It reminds me of the Garbage Pail Kids. I mean, he looks like a Garbage Pail Kid, mm-hmm. which is also kind of creepy. <laughs> like, yeah. If you were, you know, into those. But this, another thing this film does that I really respect a lot is... I'm sure the Garbage Pail Kids were a big influence on this, actually. Yeah. So, Probably, I, think, yeah. I think it's interesting that all of how much it draws on, you know, the things that... I mean, even the Garbage Pail Kids movie came out before this, mm-hmm. so... 
uh, that had to have been an influence. But um, yeah, how could it the not one, be the one that I love too? That I thought is my pet monster. Like that was one that I I absolutely <laughs> loved. It was it was along the lines of a Teddy Ruxpin or a My Buddy doll, but huh. it was a monster, you know. And that was I think that kind of plays into the theme here for mm-hmm. me. I love that. And speaking of monsters, I mean, there's a lot, of, and I really respect this. There, there are a lot of tributes to other um, classic horror films in this. I mean, we've got, mm-hmm. we've got little nods and things to, of course, like uh, Frankenstein. We've got The Exorcist. We've got some, um, a, a little bit of Gremlins type stuff where you got the mysterious purchase of a toy from some back alley like yeah. little <laughs> you know operation style attack at one point <laughs> that, that's true yes and then um you know there's a there's definitely a, a a vampiric type of vulnerability here in this movie we'll say um you you know you got there's like a shot there's like a shining scene you know with the door and i mean uh-huh. it, there are lots of things that this is riffing on which i think adds to the strength too because it just shows that there's an appreciation for the genre as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, and I think Don Mancini and, and um, David Kirshner and Tom Holland, they're, they're all horror fans. And I think that matters. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they're, they're bringing a love of horror to the screen. Yeah. It's, it's something, it's along the lines of something like, um, uh, we were talking on land of the future recently about Blackula. You know, for the this the seventies vampire and I know we brought it up here too. When you hear a title like Blackula, you think, okay, this is gonna be sort of a humorous mm. type of film. Well, you hear a movie about a, a killer doll. Um and then you see you see pictures of, of Chucky and you're thinking, Okay, well this is gonna be sort of campy, you know, like you like you were saying, Jay, about killer clowns from mm-hmm. outer space. But it's not. And and I like and like you said, they take it very seriously, and that is probably one of the more surprising things at the time, but I also think one of the one of the things that does make it so strong, like you said, is because is because they just take it as seriously as they do. Yeah, I agree. They cast Brad Dourif as as the killer Charles Lee Ray, who, by the way, his name is based on it's an amalgam of Charles Manson, Lee Harvey Oswald, and James Earl Ray is where they they came up with the Charles Lee Ray name. Uh-huh. But Brad Dourif rehearsed with the actors. In, during the rehearsal process, and they played recordings of Brad Dourif's voice on set while they were recording, but the plan was to use Eden Gross, who was the voice of the Corky doll, in the final cut of the film, and they did a cut of the film where they used that Corky voice, that Eden Gross voice, all the way through, and it just didn't work, so mm-hmm. they called Brad Dourif kind of in a panic at the end to come back in and ADR all of his lines, um, do that dialogue replacement, and um, and so that's uh, that was kind of the process and and that almost didn't happen that way and i but i think his voice in the movie makes it so much scarier i agree but that gets into one of my um i I have very few criticisms really really and in fact this is probably my only real criticism of this movie it's kind of a nitpick when we see him earlier in the film when we see him in his human form as the killer and stuff he doesn't sound like you know, I don't want to see. I don't want to offend anybody. Like when he's Chucky, when he's the Chucky doll, he's a little bit of like he's got that New York cab driver type of attitude, which is cool and tough. And so he sounds like um he has this swagger in his voice or something. Whereas mm-hmm. he he st- seems a little more like worm tongue when he's when he's just in his human form. And I wish <laughs> I wish that we had heard him in his human form 
talk in the same way that Chucky does because right like, his his scene that he has as Brad Dourif isn't very Chucky like like he's kind right. of like on the run and crying and screaming and like yeah it's in- help don't leave me and like you know it doesn't really feel like the same Chucky it's a little incongruent right. yes yeah but yeah. but that's kind of a nitpick though honestly because you know overall tremendous and his performance is great oh yeah <laughs> now um that, let's talk about the fact that we have a doll okay now real in reality another reason i think this works is because technically the doll isn't really the monster right i mean it, the the monster inhabits the doll but it is the the evil being that is like possessing this this form that's the monster and i think what's cool about that is um you know as we've established here in the 80s with Michael Myers and then Jason Voorhees and then Freddy Krueger, we, we've established that death cannot stop our monsters. We've got these major monster figures that death cannot, cannot stop. And here again, we have a monstrous killer being that death cannot stop. And even though he's inhabiting a doll, he's still unstoppable. And so I think that's another reason why this film following, you know, Michael Myers, Jason, Freddy, I think that's another reason why Chucky, um, even though for me, he isn't obviously as scary as those other guys, but I still think he, he can hang among those slashers. No, yeah, I mean, I, I think I he's definitely, he should be part of the conversation. If nothing yep. more than for his staying power, I think he's proven that uh, uh-huh. he can carry all these films. Yeah, that's true. Now, um, let me see if there's uh, another aspect I love, which we've already mentioned a little bit, but I think it is one of the strongest parts of this film. And that is, you know, the fact that initially they suspect Andy, you know, they suspect the kid and they just think that he's mentally ill. And I think that, you know, we've got another, I mean, this kid has already been through a lot. He lost his dad and then he's got this crazy doll that's um, dangerous and scary and and then they think he's crazy and they take him away from his mom. And so we got another example of horror happening to those who deserve at least. But also, like, I mean, just if you put yourself in that situation to be wrongfully accused of this kind of thing, especially as helpless as a child is, as vulnerable and unable to communicate. And I think that throughout the film, especially later on, they capitalize more and exploit the fact that he's a vulnerable child, which is great, too. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, I think there are a lot of problems with the film that have when it comes to the logic, I think, of how the doll is used. And I think part of that comes from the changes that were made by Tom Holland from Don Mancini's script and how the, it was kind of like 50 50 and the parts didn't necessarily mesh very well, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I yeah. think you get some weird things like the whole voodoo aspect and the voodoo teacher stuff doesn't make a lot of sense and you know and his he commits his first crime at night while Andy's asleep that's so effective why stop why do this weird thing where Andy has to skip school and then take him across town and then you know like wh- why why not just do it at night while Andy's asleep again you know or uh, right. you know I heard well. this interview with Don Mancini when he is talking about the voodoo aspects and if you don't mind we can play a clip from that um Mm-hmm. The little clip from Don Mancini discussing his problems with the voodoo aspect of uh, Child's Play. Chucky goes to his voodoo instructor. Your own personal mojo, Doc. 
give me that. And I just thought, well, that's a whole other kind of magic that's going on in this movie. So it's like, well, if he has a voodoo doll of this guy, why can't he make voodoo dolls of all the other people he wants to kill? For that matter, as a serial killer, you know, why not make voodoo dolls of all your victims? And it's just, it's probably, I don't know, maybe an occupational hazard. Probably best not to think about it too much, but, um, uh, anyway, I find it kind of hilarious. Well, John, it's been fun, but I gotta go. I have a date with a six-year-old boy. And you have a date with death. Well, one thing is, though, I mean, you know, the whole voodoo aspect, I mean, there has to be a doll, right? And so the uh, his teacher, his, his sensei of voodoo... <laughs> Yeah. He, he he did have a, a doll already connected and hooked up to himself, which, by the way, why would you do that? It would like, why would, you, why would you make one of those? I mean, I would make one of Dave, but I wouldn't want to make one of myself is what right. I'm thinking. Right. But, I see what you're saying. But that's funny. Um, you know, tell me what your thoughts are on this one. And, and I, we're going to get into the, you know, throughout this month and, and the coming weeks, we're going to get into the sequels and discuss their value but let's just say if this film were just a one-off movie and it stood alone on its own i mean part of me thinks that this would be um an even more valuable classic to people i think i think a lot of times we talked about this before in a franchise sometimes later films will actually affect the way you think about an earlier film and i think maybe one of the most prominent examples of that it's not horror but like the matrix trilogy I mean, the second and third Matrix movies really tend to affect the way people feel about the first one. <laughs> yeah, sure. So. The first one is is like well, this great movie, and then you watch the next two, and then you're kind of like, ah, all of a sudden the first one, the first one is still great, but you're right. It it just kind of hurts it. It, it just kind of hurts that it's part of that whole mythos mm-hmm. that we've that we've got these these two, especially the third one, where they don't even go into the Matrix hardly at all. But you're right. You're absolutely right. I don't. But I think I think this would have been, uh, you know, like you're saying, it would have been a classic, well respected. But I don't think Chucky would have been quite as, quite the cultural phenom that he mm-hmm. that he became. True. Um, you know, because you don't get that. Well, I guess there are some movies that are that stand alone that you get that. But I don't know that it would. I think at the time period it might have been, but then it would have sort of died out. Whereas nowadays, I mean, everyone knows this is one of the funniest things about this for me is that my youngest son, who at the time was not even into horror movies, I guess he was like maybe 12 or 13 at the time, came to me with my box set of the Chucky movies and said, I want to watch all of these. So we actually on the weekend sat down and watched all of the Chucky movies. And of course, as it got into some of the later ones, I was kind of like, eh, might have been a mistake. But, (laughs) you know, the first first one, he was really... really, uh, really into it you know he really uh he has seen it's funny because he hasn't seen all of the halloweens the friday 13th anything but he's seen all the chucky movies oh well the priority well again i I think that's a thing because i think this speaks to children in the way that probably scared those parents groups because it's a doll kids toy and it's the thing that we you know immediately want to know more about and see more of when we see it as a child i think you know so i don't know <laughs> i haven't seen all of the films i've seen a lot of them and i haven't ever revisited one before <laughs> right 
But, I, but I'm curious. It sounds like you guys are saying that the first one you think is definitely the best, and that's not my recollection. So I'm I'm very curious to get into this franchise mm-hmm. and see I if I, I don't <clears throat> think it's the best one. Yeah, I, I and and, I'll, and I, it's not that I don't I don't think that the rest of them don't have value. Um, yeah, I just think there's something special about the first one. Agreed. I guess is probably the best way to put it, um, because I think there's a few. Or that that had, that do have value. Mm-hmm. I, I just think the mythology is a little scrambled from the beginning, and I think a lot of times we don't see that until the sequels. And so mm-hmm. you know, and so I think it's interesting. I'll, I'll be interested to see how the mythology kind of settles once it kind of gets past those early sequels and and kind of settles in. You know, right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I won't reveal it here because it, it'll come later here in our franchise review. But this first one is not Brad Dourif's favorite, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of it, his favorites is one of the later ones, which we'll tell you more about later on. But um, so for those and honestly, I don't have a lot to say that's spoiler related. So, I mean, I, I do have one quick thing that I, I would like to talk about. So, you know. It, how about giving me like 30 seconds if you haven't if you haven't seen this movie you don't want to have any spoilers just fast forward but um so the most upsetting part of this to me is at the end when when chucky is burning and he's he's on fire it's very disturbing because it actually looks like a child is on fire yeah, it does. and you're, you're, and right. you're like looking at a child being burned alive and, right. and, and and that was one of the scenes where they used a little person, so there was a real human in there. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, and that's probably why it looks so realistic. But. Yeah, and and that's extremely mm. upsetting. I mean, like like um, honestly, I don't recall any other film, horror or otherwise, where I've seen like a a little child being burned up. So right. that that's interesting. And and then of course like, I love I mm-hmm. love the look of Chucky after he's burned though I thought they did such yes. a great job with that that really upped the the horror for me I thought this looks awesome they did this so well mm-hmm. and speaking of Toy Story you know the way his head looks reminds me of one of the you know the toys from the you know the neighbor bully kids room oh the the, the doll head on that uh, on the spider like body yes yes <laughs> yeah it reminds me of that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And of course, as is um, fashionable in horror, I mean, this is a, a perfect example of how the monster is never quite dead. And, and this maintains that as well, that convention. And so I love and appreciate that. But any final thoughts um, as we start to wrap up our review of Child's Play? I uh, Just on that note, there is a Laurie Strode moment in this film as well <laughs> that <laughs> looks very reminiscent of Halloween. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. one, and there's one thing I want to mention. Just it, just something always makes me uh, chuckle a little bit as I'm watching this. Um, it's sort of a montage uh, when the mother is going out trying to find the homeless person who sold her this doll. Yeah, yeah. So so it's quiet. You know, the the, the music's playing over. You're not hearing any of the dialogue. Don't hear her talk. And you see her trying to describe to one person that the homeless person she's looking for, and she says <laughs> basically mimes it out bad teeth and pushing a cart. So let's see a homeless person in Chicago with bad teeth, pushing a shopping cart. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about. Right. It's, it's probably about 
20,000 of them or something. <laughs> I, I, I always thought that was kind of funny that, yes. that he uses that as a descriptor. Of, yeah. Here's the person she's not I'm in a small for. town. Yeah. No, yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like she's in you know, Perky Omenville, PA or something. Right. Where there's like three homeless people. I mean, this is Chicago, for God's sake. <laughs> I, speaking of Chicago, though, I think it is awesome that it's set there. You know, I always kind of harp on the fact that so many movies are set or shot in, you know, the Southern California look. And I love when a film really goes on location and gets the vibe of a location. And I, I think Chicago yeah. adds a lot to this movie. I like mm-hmm. that cold winter feel uh, comes through for me. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I agree. 100%. I think Chris Sarandon is someone we haven't talked about that much in the film. Mm-hmm. I, I don't love his character in this. I think it's a little bit goofy uh, as well. Like the logic of his character is seems a little strange mm-hmm. and just take out of how it all, it fits very neatly together that this is the same police officer <laughs> well, shooting at Brad Dourif is later the same guy who shows up <laughs> at this house. But the worst right. is, I mean, and, and the worst is in, in the car related scene, it's like, Hey bro, Take your foot off the gas, you know, like yeah. later, <laughs> floor it, baby. Yeah, later they, yeah, ad- right. they address that, you know, where Chucky interferes. But I mean, for the longest time, I'm like, why, why don't you stop the car and get out? Dumb, dumb. Yeah. But, Although I, I, I do like the knife aspects of that scene. I think they're really yeah. kind of freaky and fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, let's move into our ratings. Um, I'm, I'm going to just be bold and go first here. So for me, Child's Play from 1988, I actually, I remember seeing this as a kid and I was like, let's see what I, I you know, I wasn't that much of a kid. I guess I was around 12 years old. So, but it, it still freaked me out though, to be honest with you, I, it's kind of a creepy movie and it's a, it's a good 80s slasher. And so for me, it's an eight out of 10. And I would call this a buy. I think it's a buy it. And if you're a horror fan and you haven't seen this, I, I would call this a must see at least once. But for me, I say buy it. What do you say, Doctor Shock? I know we. Re- I rated this once before. We had done a a dolls episode on Planet Macabre. I have no clue what I remember what I rated it then. No, but I'm going to agree with you. I'd say an eight. I think eight out of ten, and I think it, I think this is a definite uh, definite buy. Uh, you can get the entire well the first five movies on this set very inexpensively i mean i've seen it at walmart um not in the bargain bin but like for like you know 12 13 dollars or something like that it's a set uh box set of the first five chucky movies that's where i ended up picking it up and uh mm-hmm. um so if you can find that then it's a then it's a buy uh, but I say it's a buy. This one's a buy anyway, and it is available on Blu-ray as well. Mm-hmm. So eight out of ten. Okay, and what do you say, Wolfman Josh? Um, you know, this is a film that haunted my dreams as a child, so I appreciate that about it. Um, it is, I think, kind of a horror classic. I think for any completist of the, you know, the '80s slasher films, or really just horror fans in general, I think this is a must-watch. It's a it's one of those that you, you just have to see once. I think it's successful for me still because of the uncanny nature of this little creepy thing doing doing the mischief or, or participating in these these atrocious events. The same way that um, gremlins or ghoulies or critters <laughs> or leprechaun mm-hmm. um, 
kind of captured my imagination as a kid, I think that's the same reason Chucky did. And I think it's even more so because it's a child's toy. And so I think that element is really effective. Ultimately though, I'm not a big killer doll kind of fan. And I'm actually really turned off by the New York cab driver aspect of Chucky kind of in the same way I am by Freddy Krueger, all of the bitch talk and all that. I just, I don't appreciate that. <laughs> so I kind of, right. it just, it's kind of a turn off to me. Like it's, it grates on my nerves a little bit listening to someone talk like that. It's not a, a personality type I necessarily enjoy. And so um, even in a killer, even in my killer, I don't enjoy. So right. uh, yeah, it's just not a character that I'm fond of that I want to revisit over and over again in that way. But I, I do, as I said, I think it's a must see for horror fans. I'm going to give it a seven and I'll kind of call it a high priority rental. Okay. Seven high priority rental. And uh, one last little uh, factoid here for you guys. So the previous weekend in theaters, just so you know, um, was the release of They Live, right? So that was the previous weekend. Mm. And then in the previous month, so I'm talking about October of 1988, you had the release of Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Mm. You, you had Night of the Demons. You had Pumpkinhead. You had the, the Lair of the White Worm. And then Dr. Shock's favorite non-horror film mystic pizza so Jesus. <laughs> i don't think i ever saw mystic pizza that's oh. that who's in that i love julia roberts or julia yeah. roberts and don't lie don't. I, had, I've never, I had a I've huge never crush that. on her on young julia roberts and i had fried green tomatoes and mystic pizza on the same vhs tape and i had wow. sometimes <laughs> as a as a young fourth or fifth grader would just tune in to watch julia roberts <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> or however old i was I don't know. Wow. well done all right thanks for listening to our child's play review and i believe we have a uh, listener feedback comment uh wolfman josh right this for regarding child's play yeah juan from houston texas oh, great. gave us yeah he gave <laughs> us a little his thoughts on child's play which i wanted to share um you know as i i do worry that like with our Nightmare on Elm Street franchise review, if we are not doing these films, giving the films their proper respect, we should try to get some Child's Play fans involved, you know, because I know that people do love these movies. Juan is a Child's Play fan. And so I asked him if he wanted to share some thoughts and he, he shared these with us. Juan says, Child's Play is very dear to my heart because I watched it at the right age for it to make an impact as big as the other big horror franchises like Halloween and Friday the 13th. I was petrified of Chucky all through elementary school and even middle school. The movies are a lot scarier in my mind during that time frame than they are now. But even so, I find them very enjoyable in a mindless kind of way, much in the same way as many of the Friday the 13th or Halloween sequels. I've heard many people criticize the franchise because they don't think dolls are scary. Well, the movie works best when you put yourself in a kid's mindset because it's not really about the doll itself. The doll is just a symbol for a child's innocence. In a kid's world, a toy symbolizes entertainment, company, solace, even friendship. Imagine that which you think of as a friend turning against you and hurting you and everyone you love. It's a terrifying thought for a kid to go to their safe place, which is probably their room amongst their toys, and have that taken from them too. 
I'll admit that the movie is more interested in exploiting the premise's entertainment value than to explore the fear of the child. But like A Nightmare on Elm Street, the movie runs with the idea and has fun with it, and that's something that even as an adult, I can appreciate. So thanks for that comment, Juan. I thought it was pretty insightful. That's excellent. Yes, it reminded me of a bad experience I had one time as a child with a He-Man toy, actually. Like what he said there. Truly, and I'm I'm not even making uh, I'm not making light one. I'm being serious. Yes, it's very disappointing when your toys seem to turn on you and harm you. <laughs> Anyways, what, did you sit? Did you sit on it? Okay, you did it. You asked. Uh, here, here, here's my little m- mini. Uh, people are gonna really hate that I'm sharing this. Uh, this is my mini campfire tale to precede and warm everybody up for Josh's campfire tale to come. Um. So I was a little kid, I don't know, what, what, like seven or eight, pretty innocent. And if those who remember the He-Man action figure, um, in his left hand, I believe it was, he had a, a shape where it was cupped so you could like stick the sword in there, right? But in his right hand shape, it was just sprawled out fingers, like all his fingers were spread apart. Does anybody, yeah. do you guys remember that? Vividly like recall the fingers yes okay and you know the swivel action grip right like when you do the the the, you can swivel the hips and like it'll actually strike and so forth Mm -hmm. anyway i had just gotten out of the the bathtub and i wasn't dressed yet and i was playing with the he-man characters on my bed and i did the swivel action grip and one of his fingers on that open hand caught me in the worst possible place you could imagine (laughs) and harmed me horribly (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and it was a nightmare. And like, so when, when one, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but when one said that about the toys turning on you, I had a, that all came rushing back to me as a distinct memory <laughs> that, that I got the, uh, fingered by a uh, He-Man. So that's very exciting. Whoa. <laughs> so. You might want to, you might want to re-quote, re quote, redo that quote. No, I, yeah, I was, yeah. that was for humor. I did it on purpose. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, there you go. So, anyways, yeah, that was awful experience. <laughs> so, so <laughs> that was, how's that camp for a campfire tale? That's beautiful. All beautiful. right. So, anyways, to tell people the plan for October on Horror Movie Podcast, we're really excited about this month, actually, because as um, people who have been with us a while know, what we do is we go from bi weekly to weekly. We release on uh, each Friday in October. We're going to be reviewing the Child's Play franchise, which is uh, going to be a good time. And in fact, on, on our uh, last installment of that, we're actually going to have a recording it, because we're seeing the film. The three of us are seeing the film together in one location in the theater, and then we're going to review it afterwards, and that's going to be very exciting. Um, also, our yes, and because our meetup is this month in October of... Uh, October 14th, um, that's going to be part of the festivities as well. So did you have anything you wanted to say about the the meetup, guys? Besides that Dr. Shock's going to be there in the flesh. Oh, yeah, it's going to be awesome. Released October, Friday the the 6th will be Child's Plays Part 2 and 3. Our meetup is that next week on Friday the 13th. We're going to have a little party for Dr. Shock, and then we're going to have our live meetup on the 14th. So that will be a lot of fun. So so that week we'll will not be having a release, and then the week following that we'll be releasing the podcast of our live meetup event um, on the twentieth. Mm-hmm. 
October 25th will be Child's Plays 4 and 5, right? Um, yeah. Oh, that, so that's where we're – sorry, I keep saying the recording dates. That actually is, <laughs> will be released the 27th. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on Halloween – that's that's going to be the exciting one yes the halloween one yeah. that's that yeah we're gonna uh, our goal is we're gonna release um an episode on halloween day just so you can celebrate the right way with us of course <laughs> so that's fun and also as it has become tradition um we we do our 31 days of halloween um, written movie reviews, which primarily is supplied by Dr. Shock, right, Dave? You want to tell us about? Do you have a great lineup for us? I I do. As a matter of fact, it's it's all modern of uh, modern films. It's all films within the last two or three years uh, that I have not caught up with. Um, some of them are, are ones that I'm glad that I will have seen before um, from like last year. A few of them even made my list uh, of uh, top horror films last year. But I'm really looking forward to to catching up with um, with some of the other movies. Like I, I, you know, I have movies like I'm looking forward to seeing. Like I have Raw is going to be in the lineup. I have Black Coat's Daughter, uh, A Dark Song, movies like that that I'm going to be seeing. Um, cool. I'm really anxious to see. So mm-hmm. cool. uh, and they're going to be all newer films. Uh, some of them, who knows, might make my year end list. So Dave will be releasing written reviews from DVDinfatuation.com as well over here at HorrorMoviePodcast.com. Jay and I will be writing some written reviews throughout the month as well to contribute. And we also invite our listeners to contribute. Um, If you want to submit something, you can submit it to Jay at HorrorMoviePodcast at gmail.com. And we can't promise that all will be posted, but oftentimes we do post those listener reviews mm-hmm. um, right here at horrormoviepodcast.com. So it's fun. Every day you get at least one release from Dave and sometimes two or three if Jay and the listeners and I participate as well. So <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yep. it, it's wild. It's a good month of, of horror coverage and we have a lot of fun. I feel like we, we celebrate it right. And for those who are attending the meetup event, we're actually getting Christmas is coming early. Let's say we're, we're going to, see a couple of films there, but one of them is going to be the release of the brand new Better Watch Out, which was previously entitled Safe Neighborhood, and there'll be a live Q&A and, and podcast event with filmmaker Chris Peckover will be there, mm-hmm. and so it's going to be a lot of fun. I know some people have tried to purchase tickets recently. The time to pre-order your tickets has now gone by. And so I don't, I, I, you know, I, we've had two listeners at least contact us and say, oh, I was planning on buying a ticket, but I didn't get it in time. Well, first of all, look, I warned you guys. I've been begging you for two months to buy your tickets. It's true. So it's true. come on. But secondly, um, just email me at thewolfmanjosh at gmail.com and we'll figure it out. But we want everyone to attend who can. Um, and we even have a couple of people who've bought ghost tickets for those who would like to attend but can't afford it. So, thank you to those people who have bought those ghost tickets. Yes, thank you. And I saw I saw a trailer for Better Watch Out. I have to say I'm I'm very anxious to see that movie. Mm-hmm. It's at the very top of my list to see. It. I'm, I'm hoping for great things, but I I'm, I didn't watch the trailer because I want to be as surprised as possible. Same, okay. same here. Yeah. Okay, well I don't know about you guys, but I mean. Reviewing child play was fun and all that, but the real oh. reason I'm here tonight that I showed up for work was to hear Josh's campfire tales. So, Josh, tell it. Yes. Okay. 
Let me shift gears here a little bit. As I was mentioning to you guys off air, it's really weird to be off the grid for 15 days. And then I took a red eye flight from Fairbanks. So it's really weird to then be awake for 40 hours following that and traveling for 13 hours of that on airplanes and then sleeping for 12 hours and waking up and immediately watching child's play is the first thing I do. <laughs> so I had a, had a really weird um, last couple of days. But, but one of the things I did in those last couple of days is as soon as I got to Fairbanks, I, you know, I went and I checked out what time my flight was and I said, okay, I've got just enough time. I'm going to go watch it. And I was super excited because I had planned on watching it before I left on that opening weekend, but I just did not have time. My, my, my schedule became so hectic as I was planning on, you know, to get out of town and I had in preparation, I had watched stand by me and the 1990 it and rewatched stranger things and purchased the book it so i was really amped to see the movie and i and i took the novel with me to alaska and and read that alone in my in my cabin because there wasn't running water and there wasn't anything like that to entertain me wow so i was up there to film uh some hunters and some of you who are longtime listeners of the podcast know that I have been working on this documentary about the indigenous people of the Alaskan interior, which are the Athabascan people. And um, Athabascan is a is an ancient language that ties this group to other North American, Native American tribes like the Navajo, for instance, or the Diné people, I should say. So um, they are separate from the Inupic and Inuit people on the coast, which people call Eskimos oftentimes. These are the Indians and the Eskimos. They are two different indigenous groups of people of Alaska, right? And so mm-hmm. it's easy to mix them up if you're not aware of the different um, backgrounds of these of these two tr- tribes of people. So where the coastal people are involved in uh, the hunting of things like walrus and seal and whale and polar bears and all that. The interior people have the background of hunting beaver and moose and salmon fishing. And so a lot of the film that I've been making focuses on living off the land and the subsistence living of the people in the interior of Alaska. So I've been filming a lot of hunting and when I began filming, I was a vegetarian and I'd been vegetarian for about 20 years and was vegan for a big portion of that. And so it was really odd going from being a vegetarian to uh, helping butcher a moose, for instance, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And, uh, and I, and experiencing all of that hunting actually um, led to me quitting being a vegetarian Initially, because in that way of uh, just being a guest in their community and their in their culture and not wanting to turn down the food that was given to me, um, just to, trying to appreciate the culture I was in and, and the gifts that were freely given to me by people who were living in, in somewhat depressed state um, financially, you know, it's, there's very little employment in the interior of Alaska and the people are very poor, but to a large degree. And so when someone, ha- you know, who is very poor is offering you their moose soup, you 
you take it, you know? And, um, mm-hmm. so, but also just experience in the hunting gave me, and I don't want to get too deep into this because obviously like any political or religious thing, people have very different views on something like, uh, hunting, for instance, even people who eat meat, uh, oftentimes have a very uh, negative view of hunting. But what I will say is that it gave me an appreciation for the reality of what meat is. And I think we get disconnected from that in our uh, contemporary world of chicken McNuggets and (laughs) cheeseburgers. You oftentimes don't realize that you're eating an animal even. And it's because uh, you're paying someone else to kill it and butcher it for you, essentially, you know, so that you never have to see that side of the world. And, you know, a lot of the times when someone converts to being a vegetarian, it's because they see footage from a slaughterhouse for the first time or something, you know, and they and they realize what that all entails. I think when experiencing hunting in the way I have from people who are very um, humble in the way they approach the hunting and very grateful to the animals and the earth and respectful of the animals and the earth and the way that they harvest um, gave me a, a, a great appreciation for hunting in this way. It made me feel much more connected to the planet. It made me much more grateful for the food that I have. And um, I don't know. It, 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 I felt much more in touch with my humanity and what it means to kind of be a living thing on the earth, to, to uh, see a life taken and um, and to take part in that to some degree as, as the documenter of that. And... Um, to see what that means to a family, that a family is going to be able to survive the winter and they might otherwise not if they weren't able to harvest this uh, animal. And so obviously I think there are there are things going on in this community that are uh, strange to outsiders just, you know, because they're not things that we deal with. We don't we don't kill predators where we live oftentimes, but we also don't really have predators where we live. Mm-hmm. So although I think people might look down on, on these people for freely going out and just killing wolves or killing bears, uh, that's a very shocking to us and was very off putting the idea of that to me when I started doing the documentary, I think, you know, if, if you think about your own town that you live in, if there were bears and wolves killing the town's children, I think you would see people very quickly change their opinion on whether or not it's okay to kill wolves and bears. And yes, so, absolutely. You know, we're living, they're, they're living in a place where that's a reality, where they yeah. have the, the people have to be careful when they go outside. And I was living in that world. And I've, and I've been there quite a bit before. I've been up to Alaska probably eight times for extended periods of time. But never had I stayed for such a long period in one location. I often was traveling around. And so... And also, usually with a cinematographer. And I did go with another guy, Danny Bryson, who some of our listeners know from the Survivor world. He's uh, on a Survivor podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, he's a he's an aerial photographer. So he went and he shot drone footage while I was shooting the footage on the ground. And he was only there for five days. So for the following ten days, I was by myself isolated. And it was very scary, like you going out to the outhouse to do your business and you hear wolves howling and you have to take a shotgun with you. It's not like, you know, and people oftentimes get attacked by bears in the outhouse. That's like a thing that happens. And so you have to be aware of that, you know? Um, And we were going for a particularly dangerous hunting mission 
that, you know, very kindly people tried to dissuade me from going. Dave even wrote me a very heartfelt email, which I, I very much appreciated about, um, hey, maybe you shouldn't be doing this, you know. And <laughs> I, I really confronted my mortality considering that I might die on that trip, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a weird thing to confront. It's an interesting experience, you know. And I, you guys know, I've talked about this on the show some of our previous episodes i think in our killer bears episode grizzly zone episode yeah um i said goodbye to my wife and kids before on a, on a camera twice in the past thinking that uh and you meant this it this might be it. yeah yeah, yeah it was that was real. like the real not, thing yeah right, right. and so um this was a step up in intensity where going into it i thought you know i'm going into a very dangerous situation mm-hmm. um I'm not going to talk exactly about what it is because it ended up not happening due to just factors out of our control. Um, so I'm not going to talk about the specific specifics of that. But what I didn't anticipate happening was equally as terrifying, which was uh, grizzly bear attacks. Oh, what? And so oh, no. yeah. Gosh, so oh my goodness, man, that's that is one of my biggest fears about being in a place like that. Serious when you. When you see a movie, what was that? The Revenant, and then and, and you, you, you know, you think, oh, I can outrun a bear. No, if those things get a hold of you, you're done. Right. And so, the first thing I want to do is just put an end once and for all to this silly notion that The Edge is not a horror movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Having lived it, I now know for sure. Uh, I have never felt, without a doubt, so many times in that um, in the moment that I'm living in feels exactly like a horror movie as I did on this trip. Wow. You know what I mean? It's exhilarating. Um, And afterward, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, you know, but like the movie Scream, the horror cliches either immediately flew out the window or immediately rang true because this was really happening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And as I mentioned, there was a Blair Witch kind of element to it because I was filming. Um, and I also, I will say, I, I feel like Blair Witch is largely a sham now having experienced this because at no time when facing my mortality did it occur to me to say, I'm so scared right now. <laughs> you know, that's that's not what you're feeling. It was all, there's a, there's a terror to it, but there's also, and I was talking to my wife about this, there's a certain amount of peace to it where um, your head clears and you think, okay, these are the things I need to do to survive in this moment, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, because you're not worried about all the little um, to-do list items in your life. All that is gone, right? It's strictly survival. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Just to take it back to horror for a minute, you know, and, and talking about the edge, like, I, and I thought of a lot about this after it happened because I literally felt like I was in the edge at a couple of times in the trip. Um like, as I live and breathe, that Edge is a horror movie. The bear is Jason Voorhees in that, you know, they went into his home uninvited, and he's going to take them out one by one. Wow. The bear for the natives that I was with is Michael Myers because they are just minding their own business, and they're in their version of an all-American neighborhood, but they made the mistake of getting in the bear's way. And so, you know, that's... That's horror. It, 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 horror happens to those who deserve it least. <laughs> you, maybe you can argue that a hunter deserves it, but you know, clearly, I thought in my mind at the moment about my kids and 
I didn't think, oh, I'll never see them again, but rather they don't deserve to grow up without a father because I was out here decking around. You know what I mean? Right. Um, the, the, they are, they did not deserve it. They deserve at least. Uh, it's also possible that my experience broke with the Victor victim tenant of Jay's horror tone and assignment classification. Oh, interesting. Because um, we were not the shrinking Laurie Strode 1978 violets. We were Ripley-esque, Sarah Connor-esque Laurie Strode 1998 Terminators, <laughs> you know? And yeah. So I expected that this, some of this could happen when I left. I expected the edge to some degree. I did not necessarily expect to make it out alive what I did not expect was there to be an additional horror element, which was the deliverance element. Oh, no. (laughs) And um, you guys know how small towns are to some degree. They they can be tough with, you know, these killer rednecks. And, um, you know, you go into a place where, you know, you're not from around here, are you? Kind of right, right. Right. This very tight-knit village of 300 people and they don't like outsiders. They don't know you. It reminded me of the scene in Mos Eisley Cantina. My friend doesn't like you, and I don't like you either. <laughs> I'll be That's careful. That's exactly <laughs> what it felt like, but I didn't have an Obi-Wan Kenobi to my Luke. You know, yeah. In my case, um, I encountered an incredibly drunk local who had already tried to fist fight us multiple times during dinner, by the way. <laughs> and he looked directly at me across the table while I was eating and said, uh, referring to the cabin I was staying in, which was outside of town in in the woods, he said, "My friend and I are going to come up there and skin you." And, oh wow! Uh, Side note to the listeners: Josh is not a small man; he's a tall, um, formidable man. Like he is not the kind of guy you would pick a fight with. Just so people know, so this is this is bold on their part, Josh. Yeah, it was scary, and you know, I go, I go, I go up to this cabin in the dark by myself, and I see them. I, I saw them three nights walking around outside where I was not like directly outside in my cabin, but like walking around near my house. The guys who said they were going to skin me. So I don't know if you've ever slept with a loaded shotgun in your bed with the safety off and a slug in the chamber, but I have. And uh, wow, <laughs> wow. So you know that's that's the kind of situation I was in death was so near and um, yeah if you run this scenario in your head I have to use the bathroom okay imagine you're at home and you have to use the bathroom it's nighttime you're in bed you think I have to use the bathroom right should I take a shotgun with me to the bathroom in case a wild animal attacks me on the way to the john or during my usage of the bathroom okay yeah and if not I leave the shotgun here in the house should I leave a slug or a shell just in case these locals show up to start trouble? Or is it better to not leave a loaded gun in case they're waiting for me when I get back from the bathroom to kill me with my own gun? Hmm. So here, here's what I did. I left the shotgun there and then took a knife with me to the bathroom and brought shells in my pocket just in case they had the gun when I got back. Like, these are the things that were going through my head for 15 days. Wow. <laughs> why? So just wow. curious. So why didn't you want to carry the, the gun with you to the bathroom? Well, just because keep it I didn't. You. I just didn't want to have a loaded shotgun with me when I'm trying to use the restroom, basically. Oh, I got you. Okay. It was crazy, dude. I mean, it was <laughs> extremely insane. Um, but I will share one very specific story. Um, we were hunting moose, and the hunter I was with had, had killed the moose. And 
it was late at night. And so the best time to hunt moose are in the very early morning and the very late evening because they move around the most when it's cold. And during the day, they kind of stay hunkered down for a lot of the day. Mm-hmm. And so the best time to hunt them is like right after dawn or right at dusk, you know. And so we were in a situation where he had shot a moose right at dusk. And the procedure that he would normally do is he would cut open the stomach, take out the guts, and then we would come back in the morning so that, you know, because it's unsafe to be out there after dark. But we were kind of far away, and he didn't really want to waste the gas, and he's a little bit of a headstrong type of guy, and so he had decided he's going to butcher the entire moose, which is a long process. It takes like two hours, you know. It takes at least an hour and a half to butcher a moose, especially he's by himself in this case because I'm filming and there's no support crew with either of us, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he decides he's going to butcher this in the dark. And it was the last day of the moon cycle. So it was completely dark. There's no moon in the sky. We're in the middle of the woods. He has a headlight. I have no light. I mean, the way they had this little LED flashlight that he had brought from his boat. And I, it, but it's like less light that emanates from your phone, you know? Wow. So I had this stuck in a, in a, in like a stump shining toward the moose to give him a little bit of extra light and as he's butchering and i'm filming i keep hearing sounds like i keep hearing walking what sounds like walking around the perimeter of the tree line of where we're at in this clearing and i and i assume it's wolves because i hear i'm hearing in three places you know Mm -hmm. and i you know and bears i although they sometimes do work together especially if it's like a cub or you know, siblings or cub mother kind of situation that they'll be together. But oftentimes bears are kind of alone in these types of situations. So I'd assumed it was wolves, but in my previous exam, uh, previous experience being surrounded and stalked by wolves, they were howling the whole time, you know, they were, and that was their, their way to key to each other where they were at and how to close in on the victim. Mm-hmm. So this was different where they was silent. And so I was a little bit worried. Um, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see further away from me than maybe four feet away from me. It was so dark. Um, and plus you, know, you, you had a camera in your hands rather than a gun at this point, right? Right, and light, because I'm also looking at LED screens, so light's shining in my eyes. And so you know how that kind of affects your eyesight in the oh, dark. Like great. you can't see as far. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I had a, so I did take a firearm with me for the first time because I knew the main mission we were doing was more dangerous than usual. And so I had taken a shotgun with slugs. So for people who don't know, like a shotgun is typically shoots out like little BBs, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would do nothing to a big animal. So I had to take a shotgun with slugs, which is just a, a big giant piece of lead. Um, and that would be effective at close range, potentially with like a moose or a bear. Um, so that's what would normally be in my shotgun. But... We the guy had gone goose hunting earlier in the day because he saw some geese and wanted to bring a goose home to his mother-in-law. <laughs> so he took the slugs out of my shotgun and replaced it with birdshot, which is like really ineffective. Oh, oh great! <laughs> and it would literally do nothing. Just, right? so, just make him more mad, right? Like make him angry. <laughs> right, just get him angry. My shotgun only had birdshot. In it. I had completely forgotten about that. But at this point, I'm not even holding the gun. It's leaned up against a tree, and I'm filming. And um, I start hearing things. So I turn off my camera because really I, there's not enough light to film anyway. You know, it's so dark. I'm only seeing exactly what his headlamp is shining on. And um, I start telling him, like, there's some, there's something like hearing something walking around the camp. And, and he's saying, um, 
you know, you're being paranoid, whatever. He's kind of making fun of me, basically, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's saying, you know, you're hearing things, you're being paranoid. Um, you know, we've been out here for a thousand years and you have to own the, the woods. You can't let something else own the woods. You know what I mean? It's kind of so the he, way he... He was giving you a pep talk, though. That's pretty cool, right? You're... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I'm ready to leave. Mm-hmm. You know, he said, you're hearing things. I said, I'm hearing the voice of my children say, Dad, don't let us grow up without a father. Right. Cut up a moose. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Oh. And nature warns you of some of these things is the other thing I'll say. Like the animals, the raven, when it, when there's danger around, it does this thing where it flips upside down for a second. Like it'll be flying and it will flip its entire body upside down and they continue flying. So it gives you a signal that there's something dead around here or there's a predator around here or something like that. And and if you if you the natives in that area, they they're very keyed into the animals and they'll notice when they've learned what these things mean when the animals do this, you know, and it's a key to them to say, oh, okay, there might be danger here. There might be mm-hmm. the thing I'm hunting there. One of the things that beavers do is they slap the water with their tail when there's danger. And there were a lot of beavers in the water near where we were. And they, you know, they slap their tails when we first drove up in our boat, but then, you know, we are harmless to them and they become used to us and they continue with their, work with building their house and building their food piles and you know they weren't scared of us essentially at that point because we were not you know interacting with them in any way we weren't trying to harm them or even paying attention to them so they had become docile essentially the beavers were just kind of down in the river swimming around and we're probably 100 feet from the river where his boat is docked and the but the river is down a large hill covered with kind of thorny um, brush of course yes <laughs> and uh yeah and um and i keep telling him i'm hearing something i heard something i heard something over there i heard something over there and he's he's making fun of me and then we hear the beaver slap the water which means there's a predator in the area basically you know it means oh. he smelled something that, that worried him and when we heard the beaver slap Oof. that's the first time the guy took me seriously you know mm-hmm. he's like oh there's something around uh-oh. And right then, we hear these sticks break behind him, maybe 10 feet away from him. Oh. And so he turns, and his flashlight just doesn't reach that far. But for one thing, there are trees and brush. And so to cut through those on a pitch black night, it just won't reach. It just doesn't have the reach. Right, know? right. And we hear the bear is slapping the ground. It does this thing where it hits the ground with its front arms before it charges. Boof, boof, and it's breathing. It's going, Making the sound, which is the essentially oh. like, watch out! I'm gonna charge you and kill you. Sound right? Oh. And it's breaking sticks with its, with its hands and hitting the ground and and doing the thing. And so he starts taking me seriously. And this is the moment that feels like a horror movie, guys. We're looking into the abyss. There's a, a monster just out of sight, but very close to us. And it looks like a horror movie aesthetically. Like it's pitch black. There's a light shining into nothingness. We, we can hear the monster, but can't yet see it. I raise my shotgun, and in the moment where I hear it go, like I'm in a horror movie all of a sudden. And it was crazy. Like it, I felt transported in this weird simulacra rich moment of I'm living in this meta movie moment. Mm-hmm. I, it was weird. It was just a weird sensation. And um, and you thought of Doctor Shock and me in that moment, right? Your buddies. No way. <laughs> He's like, no, no. And I said, should I fire? 
And he said, I said, can I fire, actually? I think is what I said. And he said, no, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> oh, well, and, and I said, why? And he said, I want to I wanna wait and see if it's going to come out. I want to get a clear look at it, you know. And I said, it's going to come out charging when it comes out. It's getting ready to charge us, you know. Mm-hmm. And he, the thing with his gun was he has this really powerful rifle that's typically used for big game hunting, like elephants and lions and stuff so it's it's a very effective weapon and he's a crack shot but it had this thing where it had broken somehow and the and the clip kept popping out so he would get one shot and then the clip would fall out the bottom of the rifle i would have been like hey buddy you're not very prepared for this are you like (laughs) i'm I'm surprised you weren't a little more impatient with this guy at this point because um that that's a lot of things he took your he took your uh, ammo out of your gun and he's not listening to your warning. I mean, I would have been like a little bit annoyed, I think. Yeah, I was the harbinger of doom in that situation. Right. The prophetess, the Sydney Prescott-like prophetess. <laughs> um, no, but so basically, I mean, these are the kind of things that are running through my mind. I said, okay, I, I realize I don't have ammo that's going to do harm to this. He has one shot to pull this off, you know? Like, if it doesn't happen, it's not going to happen. And, you know, part of my friend just said, Let's get the out of here. <laughs> you know, and he's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I said, we have to go. Mm-hmm. And as we start backing up, the bear comes into the clearing from the woods, and he's breaking sticks and pounding the ground. <clears throat> he yells, hey! And the bear doesn't do it. It doesn't slow down at all. It doesn't intimidate it at all, right? Right. And I tell him, I said, I have birdshot in my shotgun, and I think that was the thing that ultimately made him realize, because he knew he had one shot, and I think had I maybe had slugs in my shotgun, he would have felt a little more confident, but I think realizing that maybe he didn't have any backup if it didn't work out was enough, so in some ways I'm kind of glad that that was the case. Oh, so so he was... If you had slugs, then he might have been willing to take down this bear or attempt to. If he could have seen it and had a clear shot, he absolutely would have taken it down. Because I know that because I know what happened the next day. Okay. But, <laughs> but um, oh in this instance, yeah. yeah, we could not see well. He had one shot. I had nothing. And so we were we were moving very slowly, but very I don't, I don't know how to say this very slowly, but very quickly. We were promptly moving at a very slow clip backward, you know? Okay. And, and get kind of close to the edge of this steep hill. And we both at the same time do exactly what we're not supposed to do with a bear, which was run. Oh. And we jump over the edge of this ledge and slide down this incredibly thorny embankment through all this brush onto his sled and a thorn like hits me directly in the eyeball which I don't know if you've ever had that sensation but it was, it was painful oh. but again not top, top of mind but um, we get down to the boat and we're, we get out on the water and his boat is not working there's there's this it's there's an airlock situation this guy and he, <laughs> Josh <laughs> and we can we, we can go a little bit but then just stop the boat just chugs to a stop all of a sudden right oh wow <laughs> So I'm kind of worried because bears swim very well, and I can imagine a gr- this grizzly coming down and climbing up onto our boat and tipping us over or sinking it or attacking us, you know. But nothing, none of that happens, and we got away, and we survived to see another day. Wow. And um, 
you know, and this was becoming a problem in this area. The bears were becoming more cavalier, you know, um, he had said, so what happens a lot of time is they use as much of the animals they can. They use, they use all of the meat. They use even like the face meat. They use the nose of the moose. They use some of the organs. They take the liver and the kidneys and the heart and the stomach fat. And they use all of this stuff, but they do leave some of the entrails there. Okay. And they also usually, if they don't tan the hide, it's not incredibly comfortable first. And, and a lot of people don't, uh, still tan hides so they don't always take the moose skin and they usually leave the feet portion of the moose from basically the knee down to the hoof they usually leave that in the field and so there is a little bit of a meal there for a bear and so what happens is a few days after a killing the bears will smell that and come to the area and eat eat the leftovers but he was saying over the last couple of years it's becoming closer and closer to the point where it used to be two days and then it was one day after and this year, what we experienced was three bears during the time I was there showed up to Hunter's Kills immediately after the kill. They would hear the gunshot and go toward it. And we had an extremely intelligent bear. The way you hunt moose is you do a bull call, sometimes a cow call, but mostly a bull call, signaling that you're another bull moose who wants to fight. So they come in to fight. The biggest bulls come in to tear stuff up, and that's when you shoot them. Mm-hmm. After we shot this moose, we heard another moose call nearby and we thought should we go check this out and we decided ultimately no it's getting late we should you know get this gutted and get out of here um thankfully because what we later learned was this was the bear and the bear had learned to mimic the sound of no. a moose no way was doing moose calls and was calling us in essentially now it was i don't know that it was doing it to call us in like i'm assuming this is its hunting technique is it calls bulls and then kills them but this was an extremely intelligent animal, and this was verified by another hunter who had seen this bear doing a call. Essentially, it was making it was making a sound similar enough to the moose call that both we and the bull moose were mistaking it for a moose. Wow! You know what I mean? That's impressive. So you, this bear is an impersonator. That should be a circus bear. Yeah. No, well, seriously, it's amazing. Wow. Anyway, uh, that's the end of this particular grizzly tale. Uh, We got away with our lives, um, and I was very thankful for that, and I wish I could say that was the end of it, but, um, you know, I was with a very tenacious person who thought it was time to put an end to grizzlies feeling so comfortable in the area we were in, and so uh, we spent pretty much the rest of my trip uh, encountering grizzly bears, and it was terrifying. But luckily... On the daylight from that point on, not in the in the dark in the situation where we were ill prepared. Oh so. my goodness! But so when you're when you're out there like that and you're seeing like it, let's just say in the daylight when you see a bear and it's like you're not at a zoo, it's not behind glass or bars, and it's just like you're out in the open with that animal. What mm-hmm. I mean, what, what you do you even have a contingency plan? It's like okay, I'm gonna. I'm going to try to run this way, I guess. And like, I mean, what are you, what are you thinking in that moment? I mean, in the moment I was in, I was literally get to the boat, get to the chopper kind of moment. Right. right? Like <laughs> get to the boat. it felt like predator. That was the other thing it felt like in the other days to follow. As I mentioned, we were taking the Victor position where we were going after the, the animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was different feeling. There are a lot of tips 
which I would recommend anyone look at if they're going to be in an area where bears are, how to avoid contact with bears, how to get a bear to leave you alone. Um, because of the specific situations I was in, which was we had a lot of blood all over us and all over the area and a dead animal that they like to eat, and it was nighttime and we had no protection, we were not in the position for contingency plans really other than run away, you know? Right. And then the days to follow – there it, we were taking the proactive approach to that we were looking for the bear so um it, that's completely different uh ill-advised uh <laughs> right okay position to be taking it was terrifying i have to say but uh again the locals in some to some degree were just as scary in terms of getting a good night's sleep more so than i would have ever thought you know yeah i, I had a real harrowing kind of uh, experience where I death felt close to me all the time. Like I, I, it took me, I, you know, I've only been back now for a day and a half, but one of the first things that when I landed, we went directly to my son's soccer game and I was still in the mode of constantly looking around, assessing, you know, what's around me. Is there an animal near me? Like what's, what's you know, really taking stock of the area. And so you were prepared for all those soccer moms. Right. Situation. <laughs> no, I just was not. I, I, it, it, it took me a while to adjust to. You're not in danger right now. I mm-hmm. had exited the food chain finally after 15 days, and I. It's a interesting kind of situation to be in. Basically. Oh my so. goodness! So, um, I couldn't tell. Maybe you were alluding to the fact that you couldn't comment. But so did did your friend take out the circus bear or is that is that uh off the record stuff that you can't say? No comment. Okay. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Josh, that was a remarkable story. What do you think of that, Dr. Shock? You want to go to Alaska with That's Josh crazy. next time? No. No. <laughs> I don't there's nothing about that that sounds appealing at all. Josh, I don't. <laughs> I mean, you you do this obviously you do it for the the love of film, for ambition. I mean, what, that's right. the last question. Why, why did you do this? Knowing ahead of time. I mean, you were kind of prepared to say goodbye to your family. So, I mean, that's yeah. some serious passion. What was it that did that for you? Um, I, my, my blanket answer to that is this is what I do. Uh, I thought about that a lot. I did a lot of soul searching during this time and I realized I I have risked my life more than make sense for the, this project. (laughs) I probably shouldn't have been in a life or death situation four times for one documentary. That is not even a topic. I I mean, I care about it, but I'm not, it's not like a pat. This is not a passion project. I did it because I needed some money. You know what I mean? Like I did it for the page. So it's, um, I, I, I just realized I, I don't know. I don't know. I am, I'm a little bit reckless. I think, uh, you know, I think there's a part of me that's the artist that is driven to that. But I had a moment of crisis before leaving where I really regretted agreeing to go. Like, I think my initial response was, he's like, I'm going to do this. Do you want to go? And I said, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And he booked the plane ticket. And then once he booked the plane ticket, I thought, Oh, like, I think I'm just now reaching an age and a maturity level where I'm like, oh, I can die. I'm not invincible. 
other people now depend on me and I love those people. Right. And I, and I am just now reaching that in life, you know, and I think yeah, it right. just takes a certain amount of time to come to that conclusion. Uh, at least for someone as dumb as myself. So that's basically, <laughs> I, I didn't, I, I really did not want to go. And I, I told, I think I told you guys this, you know, mm-hmm. but before I left, but I really yeah. didn't want to go. Right. Um, I thought I really regretted, but I had also, you know, but there were two things. There was one where this is my job and there was two where I gave my word. I was going to do it. And mm-hmm. I'm not, gonna back, I'm not going to back down from that. So, right. you know, you can't let fear control your life. I think there, you can also make smart decisions though. And I did not do either of those things in this case. I did not make a smart decision, but I also did not let fear control my life. So right. <laughs> I felt very alive. It is exhilarating. Mm-hmm. It's also not something I would wish on anyone you know so right <laughs> wow well, well it's an unnecessary risk and i think that and i was trying to communicate that to the guy i was with i was you know i said there's calculated risk which i accept and i will not back down from there's also unnecessary risk and when we decide we're going to stay in the dark and butcher something i mean we were literally a hundred miles from the closest village which itself is 300 miles from the closest city if something had happened, we were would have been in a really bad situation. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Yes. So <laughs> that's that is a necessary risk that I am not willing to put myself in anymore. You know, and I took this is almost like a rock bottom moment for me in terms of my career of like, okay, like this I've now learned where to draw the line. The weird thing was, is even knowing that I was actively going to face my potential death is that I wasn't able to stay and say no still knowing that I was at rock. I, I was, I was at rock bottom in the sense that I was able to go, okay, I'm not doing this again, but I still was not able to say I'm not doing this. And that was kind of scary to me, you mm-hmm. know, kind of I scared yeah. myself in that moment. Yeah. It, it, for whatever reason, I don't know why it reminds me of that thing where a lot of people report this and I didn't I wasn't even aware of this phenomenon until it happened to me and then when I started telling people about it they're like oh yeah that's a thing if you go to see Niagara Falls and you're standing there at the top of the falls there's this weird thing and I actually have a degree of fear of the water because of my history in my life but like I wanted there's this weird thing where you want to throw yourself over into the water and go off the falls it's so weird. I can't even explain it, but a lot of people have that. And it reminds me of like this kind of what you're describing. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a certain, I don't know if we were talking about this cause you know, he's from this native American culture and from this Polynesian culture where like, is it just our warrior blood? Like it's in us that we want to confront death and like take it head on, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. or just, stupidity you know (laughs) is it just not real not realizing that we're mortal and that death can happen to anyone at any time and you know you shouldn't take that for granted (laughs) basically well there's something interesting about the whole fight or flight mechanism within us is like when people do choose to fight it it is a it's like well you know bring it on because you know i'm gonna I'm probably going to go. I'm going to go whether I fight or not. But if I do fight, I might have a chance to survive. So it does make sense to me. But Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely had that feeling of flight in that moment. But I was willing to fight. Like, I, and I, I mentioned this, but I, it was more for my kids. Like, it was not like I'm scared for me. I'm, I was, I realized, like, 
I don't want them to grow up without a father because I'm being an idiot, right. you know? And, right. and, and I realized that's, that was kind of on me. And that was what propelled me to want to get out of that situation was fear for them. Like, right. it, like I was, I would have charged, you know, like, and, and, and again, like we kind of proved what we're willing, where we're willing to go in the days to come. But, you know, it's, um, well, that see, and that, crazy. that makes sense to me what you're describing about your kids, because that uh, makes perfect sense. I'm a dad too. Uh, but I think what's interesting is that, um, and now I, I can say this now that you're safely back here. <laughs> yeah. It, it would be unthinkable. It just, just unbearable to experience being eaten alive by something mm-hmm. like that. I, I can't even imagine what that yeah. would be like. Cause, cause, cause you would have the exquisiteness and, and I'm so thankful you didn't, but, but of like thinking about your kids and being eaten alive all at the same yeah. time. I can't even, I can't even. Oh. That was interesting. And the clarity, the, the most fascinating thing to me was that clarity that I talked about in the moment where I crack the shotgun and in, in a way that I've only seen done in movies up until that point, I'm not a gun guy. Like I'm not, I went shooting to prepare for this trip, mm-hmm. but I'm not like familiar with guns. I'm not comfortable with guns. I'm in favor of anti-gun laws and stuff. You know, like I'm not <laughs> like a gun advocate and I don't use them, but I felt that moment of like, Oh, this is surreal. Wow. You know, in that moment. And I, and I felt this clarity, the same thing, like the cabin I was sleeping in, it was missing a window. And in place <laughs> of a window, it had a piece of plastic that was put up with thumbtacks. And then for privacy, there was a sheet hanging up in front of that piece of plastic. Right. And I asked the guy, why is there not a window here? Or what happened to the window? Because there had been a window previously when I'd been there. And he said, oh, a bear broke into the cabin and I had to shoot it. Oh, Jesus. And <laughs> broke through this window. And oh, my bed God. was under that window. And now there's only a piece of plastic, not a window. You're like, and sure. There's sure. guys who have threatened sure. to skin me alive. And I literally, I'll, I'll put, I took pictures of it to show my wife. There's also not a lock on the door of this cabin. That's the other crazy thing. The way they had locked the door was they had a bolt that they had kind of wedged into the space between the door frame and the door was the lock. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. So um, I'll send you, I'll put some pictures up in the show notes for this. If people are interested, I know yeah. I've been for a long time, but like literally you, you'll see my bed there next to the bed is a picture that my son drew for me that it, he, you know, that I took with me. There's my copy of it that I was reading. There's uh, all of the weapons that were in that cabin or things that could be used as weapons. It was another horror movie moment, like the <laughs> the suit up moment where they get you find weird things to use as your weapon. I had done that again solely so that if someone else broke into the cabin, they wouldn't be used against me. I wanted them close by me. Mm-hmm. I had the axe, a chainsaw, and a shotgun, and my knife next to my bed. Nice. Like I have, I have an axe and a chainsaw next to my bed, a shotgun and a knife into my bed with me. <laughs> <laughs> and, the bed, and the bed also I'm pretty sure I had bed bugs or something like anytime my feet touched it I would start itching so what I did is I, I slept in my sleeping bag on top of the bed you know mm-hmm. yeah and when I say cabin this is not like a luxury cabin this is oh yeah logs one room a wood stove right and um, no running water they did have electricity so it wasn't completely 
but there's no internet there. There's no phone, no television. It just killers outside. And I, and there was an, oh, sorry, what I was going to say is I, there was another moment when I thought I had seen those guys outside the cabin when I was coming up the hill and I'd seen them walking around in the woods kind of near the cabin, I should say. And I went in there and I have, I'm sitting on my bed and I could hear sounds outside and I don't, you know, I don't know if it's just my imagination or what I'm hearing. I could be a, a myriad of things outside, but I hear what it sounds like people walking around the outside the cabin. So I'm sitting there on my bed with the shotgun, bullet in the chamber, off safety, just sitting, waiting for them to come through the door or the window until I fell asleep. Like, <laughs> that's like, Yikes. My you know what I mean? And I did that three separate nights, but. Oh my goodness. That's incredible. That is incredible. Well, so for the listeners, if you're a first time listener tuning into horror movie podcast, what we do, what we do every once in a while is a campfire tales, which as we mentioned earlier, is like real life horror, obviously, because on this podcast, we like to analyze uh, horror cinema and why things are scary and what happens. So I think Josh has done a beautiful job relaying this. And uh, we're grateful. Yeah. Thanks for sharing these harrowing tales with us, Josh. We're glad you made yeah, it back. And I'm sorry yeah. to some long-time listeners because I was kind of just talking to you guys as friends. I kind of forgot the mission statement of the uh, Campfire Tale portion. I was kind of going okay. into more detail than I normally would in this kind of situation, but I okay. wanted to tell you guys all of those things. Um, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, My favorite Campfire Tale is the Kaoni Bothorpe's Shark Attack tale <laughs> from our shark attack episode this summer yeah. it's, it's actually harrowing in a way that mine doesn't compare but um, that's a good one too the other harrowing experience that you had you actually got the catch up once you got back to civilization you got the catch up with the movie it so uh josh we're, we're all waiting to hear your thoughts on that film okay it uh i liked it i was extremely enthused as the film began mm-hmm. um I will say I was a little more disappointed as it went on. You know, I think I, um, I, I having just read the book with it fresh in my mind, it was interesting to see all of the detail that Annie Muschietti included that had not been in the 1990 version. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated that. I liked the clown Pennywise played by Bill Skarsgård, but I still prefer um, Tim Curry by a large measure. Really? Um, okay. I like the cast in here in some ways more than the original, but I really enjoy the original cast. Mm-hmm. So um, I think Bev Beverly played by Sophia Lillis was the big standout to me of like, Oh wow, this is, so much better than the 1990 version and in fact i think it's better than the book in some ways like her portrayal of beverly was incredible amazing yeah Um, yeah i i really really liked it i also liked ben quite a bit i liked ben in the original but i love this actor that played ben (laughs) no so he was just so endearing to me yes Um, and all the new kids on the block stuff is incredible that was really good. I liked that it was this eighties. It was a weird, I, I did feel like they cheated a little bit to kind of like have their cake and eat it too, where it had sometimes kind of a fifties vibe and other times seventies and other times eighties. And then they almost go into nineties a little bit. So they kind of played fast and loose with this setting and time period. But then the other, on the other hand, it, that makes it feel kind of timeless. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that about it. 
I, I really like the Losers Club. Generally, I did not like the actor they cast to play Bill. Um, okay. I hated him, actually. Like, as a... <laughs> As a lead, like I thought he did a decent job as a child actor. I think it's hard to find a good child actor. And Uh um, he's in Midnight Special and and other stuff. But I just feel like he's really bland looking. And I know that they are losers and they're not supposed to necessarily be the most handsome people or whatever. But um, I felt like they all looked very similar. Like I felt like the guy Mm -hmm. who played Stanley kind of looked like the guy who played Eddie, kind of looked like the guy who played Bill. They all have brown hair. Like I just, I wish there was, would have been a little more diversity um, between the casting. Although I loved the actor that played Eddie. I thought he was amazing. Yes. Agreed. (laughs) um, I I thought Stanley and and Bill were kind of the weak links for me, or at least I felt like they could have been recast and I would have been fine with it. They were all, they were all good though. They all played their parts well, but who I absolutely loved was Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things, who played Richie. I think he's awesome. I almost wish they had just took taken the kids from Stranger Things and put them in this movie oh, to yeah. some degree because they're so much better, I think, as a group than this group. Mm-hmm. But I, I really enjoyed this group too. And I think um, I did feel like Mike was underserved in this compared to the 1990 version, which he doesn't have a lot to do in that either. But um, but especially compared to the book, I don't know. Yeah, I they took Mike, his historian like, thing from him that he had in the 90s version, right? So that was right. weird. Which mm. is cool yeah. in, with the Ben character. Like, I sure. thought it was nice. It was a nice addition to the Ben character. But, uh, yeah, it kind of made Mike seem like, why is he even in this, really? You know, like, he didn't really have a whole lot to contribute. Um, and mm-hmm. I didn't feel like Stanley really came through for me the way he did in the 90 version, even though I think this kid, Wyatt Olaf is maybe a better actor than the kid that's in the 1990 version. Hmm. Um, I didn't feel like where, I mean, you know, I won't spoil it, but a lot of people know what happens to Stanley eventually. And I didn't necessarily get that from this kid. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, but I loved Richie and <laughs> yes. I, I did listen to your podcast on the flight uh, home. Okay. So I made a few notes. Um, but you ultimately, so like, I was like, oh, I'm so frustrated. They didn't answer this. They didn't answer this. But then you, you did everything, all of my notes that I made in like the first 20 minutes you had addressed by the end of the review. So I was like, oh, right, they, they, they nailed. Thank you. I'm relieved to hear um, that. Aren't you, Dave? Like, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> because, because like, it's one thing we hear from the listeners all the time. I was yelling at my iPod when I was listening to your show, but like when you hear it from your co-host, then you're really nervous about. <laughs> so, right. right. No, Thanks. I was listening to my iPod too, but then I, but you, I, but like our listeners, they trust us. We know what we're doing. And I try, right. you know, I, I could have, I could have trusted that you were going to cover it, but you know, I, you know, I, um, I, there were a couple little um, kind of pop culture things in there that I that I would have liked to talk about had mm-hmm. I been on that show. Mm-hmm. I loved the choices of putting Rampage and Gremlins and Beetlejuice, yes, um, and Bat and Batman and Lethal Weapon two and Nightmare on Elm Street five. I think those were all strategically chosen, and I think you can go through. I'm not going to take the time here, but you know. I, because it's not like a feature review, but I think they all um, reflect back on the story in some way. I, I appreciated all the detail from the very moment 
at the beginning of the film when Georgie comes downstairs and his mom's playing that piano. And I'm just like, oh, they're doing it. They're putting everything in here. And, you know, obviously they didn't put everything from the book in there. And I wish they had, since they were going a little bit further, which I love that they went further. I wish they would have gone all the way with like Henry Bowers. Uh, They go further though. And it's perfect. And I'm glad that they do. And I thought they did a great job. Uh, And and Pat, I wish they had gone kind of further with those characters like they do in the book, but that was the one place I felt like I wish had gone more. Uh, Owen Teague, who plays Patrick, it was awesome. I wish they would have cast him as Henry Bowers at the beginning, because I'm a huge fan of him from Bloodline. I think he's just this incredible actor. Mm -hmm. He's so so creepy looking. And I just thought, oh, he would have been the perfect Henry Henry Bowers. But um, ultimately, the kid who played Henry Bowers did an excellent job as well. I thought he he pulled it off in the end, and um, mm-hmm. did basically, yeah, I, I really enjoyed <laughs> the cast a lot. Everyone in the cast a lot. Did you think it was scary? Yes and no. I mean, I thought it was deeply scary in the beginning. Just during the setup, I'm like, this is going to get me. Like, this is feel. I'm feeling the overwhelming dread that I want to feel during a Stephen King project. Mm-hmm. Um, because he sets up the characters so well. Is the thing you guys were talking about. That you care so much about them. Yeah. You don't want anything bad to happen to them. In the end, it kind of goes like almost like a little bit of a PG-13 horror direction, is mm-hmm. what it felt like to me. Mm-hmm. It was a little softer on some of the horror elements. And I thought... In that case, why not just make it PG-13 if that's what you're trying to do? Because I do think if you were a 13-year-old, this could be your favorite movie. Like, I feel like if I had been a kid when this came out, this I would have grown up with, like, it is the best movie ever. Let's all watch it all the time. Like, this is the this was our movie of our childhood because it does that right. time period so well. Yeah, I get that. I think, uh, I think it's a kind of a shame that they didn't make it PG-13 for that reason so more kids could see it, you know? Because I just think that's who it's made for, most most of all. Uh, other than man children in their thirties who went, you know, grew up in the eighties or whatever, who's who is it is equally made for that audience with all the eighties stuff. In there. <laughs> Surely, yes. But, yeah, but um, yeah, I thought I thought it was great. There were a couple moments that really bugged me. I am someone who really did not like the CGI. I do appreciate that it did some things from the book. And, and it had that horror in the daylight element to it. Mm-hmm. But I do think it would have been scarier if it was in the dark. Because even the stuff that was in the dark, like when they're down in its lair, it was so brightly lit to me. It was almost daylight, you know, that when they're kind of confronting Pennywise toward the end, it's, they're so bright, like mm-hmm. a gotcha. little bit darker. Um, I, I liked the house, but I thought the pump house was so much cooler in the 1990 version. Like that location was just incredible overall though this location is perfect this is the most amazing dairy ever and again like i mentioned with chicago in child's play review i think location matters so much people are critical of the use of the um the sane i guess or the critical device of saying the the location was a character in this film I, I get that that is maybe a cliche at this point in film criticism, but I don't care. Like it's, it's a major thing. It matters to mm-hmm. me. Location. I, I yeah. come from art department background. I worked in production design. I worked in location management. So I was often in charge of choosing locations and for building sets. And, and I, that stuff matters so much to me. And I think they, this 
film, the town they set this in, that they shot this in, the dairy that exists here, the kissing bridge, which they did so many cool things, like alluded to scenes that are in the book that are not with these characters, but they kind of put them into these characters a little bit. They did that so well that it felt like it belonged to this film, even though it's kind of, you know, an amalgamation of different elements from the book. All this stuff just looks so great and i think the location elevates the film greatly from just being any usa shot northern or southern california you know so i'll agree 100 percent. yeah absolutely um, but yeah the the cgi bummed me out and the other thing that really bummed me out is just one moment and i shouldn't harp on it but aren't the matrix landing like why does pennywise have to do a matrix landing like <laughs> is that over i thought that was over 10 years ago after underworld came out i did not know that people were still thinking that looked cool in movies it does not look cool it looks so stupid and again it's cool in the matrix but matrix two and three ruined it and so um like why would pennywise do that that's so lame that's and that so funny. that, that I, I like that they included the leper i did not like the look of the leper you know due to the mm-hmm. CGI, but I got you. Other than that, it was cool. I like the you guys talked about the color of the balloons changing. Mm-hmm. I like the balloon element of it. I the the way it's described in the book is so cool. Uh, it's just a you know a brief passage, but he talks about Pennywise being down in in the drain, and he says um, something like he had a clutch of balloons in his hand of every color, like a beautiful basket of fruit or something like that and i just like that image is so cool to me i I would have liked to see the richness of that but there's some terrifying images like the the one shot behind the house with the balloons is so creepy and well done Mm -hmm. um i wish on the balloon thing from the book at the kissing bridge there's a there's a scene in the book where the entire underside of the bridge is filled with like thousands of balloons and all of the flowing white strings look like spider webs and like i thought that would have been i was hoping to see that when they showed the kissing bridge but um anyway it was awesome i think it's going to be a horror classic for people who grow up with it i think it's it has the benefit i even think this could make it into my the top tier of my uh year-end films at this stage Mm -hmm. but i as I weigh it against other films that are there now, which are get out and the devil's candy. I feel like those films have an originality that they're bringing to it that are, it's just solely original to those filmmakers. Whereas this is built on the back of such a strong property with Stephen, the Stephen King novel. Yeah. Um, as lessens it a little bit for me, but as a Stephen King adaptation, this is absolutely one of my favorites. And, um, yeah, just just a great, great film. Um, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. It's mm-hmm. a see it in the theater and buy it for me. And I would see it with an audience if, if I could. So I think the audience reactions to a film like this are some of the most fun thing. And, I, you know, I'd show it to a 13-year-old if, if I had one. I think this would be a great sleepover movie if you're in high school <laughs> or something. Absolutely. Great yeah, and it's definitely historic. It has now, I just heard today on the radio, it's now topped The Exorcist and is the highest grossing R-rated horror film of all time. And I think it's achieved that like even earlier than today, prior to today. But uh-huh. that, that's remarkable. enough to be the only one that's achieved that, but I, I thank it for achieving that because I think we've had such a hard time convincing studios that horror matters. I think this is going to do the trick. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah certain 
Guillermo del Toro had a tweet about, you know, Andy Machete pulled it off. He, you know, and they, they're friends because he, he, yeah, he produced Mama. He, so the story behind that you guys brought up briefly is del Toro had seen the short version of Mama and then commissioned the feature film. Mm-hmm. And that's how Andy got to start. So that's really cool. That's excellent. All right, so that's it. And I know that um, I think were there other things you wanted to talk about? Because I think we had we had it on the list and some of my notes got erased somehow. I apologize. Not necessarily. I saw um, Alien Covenant on my flight, which oh, I had yeah, not yeah. seen previously, this and I probably wouldn't have got around to. I didn't think it was very good. I mean, I thought it was <laughs> I, I thought it looked incredible and I thought the cast was really good. I thought as an alien movie, it didn't seem particularly interestingly, the, the storyline, the plot was not very interesting to me. And I didn't think the alien moments were very scary compared to other alien movies we'd seen. Um, the use of actual alien, I didn't think was that scary, but um, it's cool. You're like, breaking I, my I, heart, Josh. You're breaking my heart. Assignments I love so much. And I, she mostly just had to deliver sci-fi jargon but she still was awesome in the movie um i love danny mcbride and i, I don't know i thought the I thought the cast was incredible so, to the list i just want to say to the listeners out there if you haven't seen alien covenant yet you gotta remember josh lived a real horror movie so then having seen this after living a horror movie you know yeah, right. you know it's gonna be a little softer than it might otherwise have struck him <laughs> but, no, I, but yeah. I mean it's it's not it's not in the top three alien movies even though right i mean would you say i can't remember where you placed it did you say it was the third best yeah it's it's that it's the third scariest to me for sure I, I'd give it that. Like, um, yeah, you've I mean, put it. You've, you've put it. I think it's almost it ahead of. You put it ahead of Resurrection. Well, I, I, and I love Resurrection. It's kind of like a guilty pleasure, but I do think it's a very effective movie, and I think it's the third scariest alien film in the Alien franchise. Oh. Yes, yes. I think the ending of Resurrection is so stupid. Well, yeah. that like it use the rest of the film, but I, but I actually think this film kind of, um retroactively fixes that film by giving us all of the variations mm-hmm. that we see in the film. So this actually, this movie actually supports great point that one. Yes. Um, and bringing in and making it feel less random and more a part of the, the cohesive narrative of the alien franchise. Mm-hmm. I, I like Prometheus better than this. I like, um, I think every version of the original alien movies is scarier than this though. Wow. Um, okay. But, all of the originals, I think, are scary. <laughs> okay, what do you rate Alien this, Covenant? This is, more of this, this is more of like a psychological think piece than anything else, in my mind. Like this idea of this person who's outgrown humanity. It's it's very sci-fi in its approach to kind of uh, the uselessness of humankind, and I, I loved all that about it. Like that was really a fascinating thing to be in the head of a despot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I rate it? Yeah, I'm just uh, curious. I hadn't thought about that. Um, <laughs> I, again, I think story-wise, dialogue-wise, it's like a five. I think um, visually, it's a ten, and I think the cast is very strong. So you know, 
what does it average out to for me is like maybe like a 7.5 okay i can i can live with that can't you dr shock <laughs> yeah uh sure i mean i haven't actually seen alien covenant so i can live with it <laughs> oh i don't know why i thought you saw it dave no no i have not so okay you need so to get yeah, on I, that I, I absolutely agree with josh's uh yeah training. Here. See the airplane if you can. That's how I watched it, and it was worth my money and time. And that's yeah, there you go. Um, there you go. Okay. So, Dave, it's it's it is now out on uh, Blu-ray and DVD, so you can still have a DVD infatuation and and visit Alien Covenant. I I am looking at the Blu-ray right now. Okay, that's good. You gonna watch it? I <laughs> I intend to watch it. Yes. You see, I, I mean, I know, I know, I have this this uh, this obsession, but I do usually intend to watch the Blu-rays and DVDs that, that I buy. That's good. I'm I don't glad. always get around to it, but I do intend to watch it. <laughs> I do have every intention of watching uh, Alien Covenant as well. The only problem with covering it on DVD infatuation is I have only ever done Alien and Aliens, mm-hmm. um, and I'd have to do some catching up before I would get to Alien Covenant. I get you. Really? Um, they, there was like a attack the block element to this film that seemed like ripped straight ripped off from attack that I thought was interesting, not super scary, but pretty like kind of scary. But I thought the actual xenomorph was not as scary as it had ever been in the past. Like mm. particularly in the first two movies, but I think even in the latter two or however many there are. <laughs> right. <laughs> Four, right. Four originals? Yeah, yeah the four, four originals. originals. And then, of course, you have Alien vs. Predator. Oh, yeah. yeah. Into that, so this uh, is better than the Alien vs. Predator movies, I'll say. There you go. True. That's <laughs> definitely true. Yeah, so just and quick- it's arguably better than the second two, but I, I do think Prometheus is better than this. Side note about Prometheus, Dave. If you do end up watching Alien Covenant, you should definitely revisit Prometheus right before you see to. it. Yeah, I would mm-hmm. have to. I've only ever seen that one in the in the theater when it first came out. And I remember liking it, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. when I, and, and I was looking at it as, as just setting everything up. I mean, a lot of people were very critical of the movie, um, but it really was just sort of the first to set up what I figured Ridley Scott was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this so is about, I was, so I think for people who probably were critical of Prometheus, I can imagine them being critical of this. And, okay. and I think if you like Prometheus, you'll probably like this. I think yeah. they're, they're probably, the same quality in my opinion okay so 7.5 josh do you tell people to rent it or buy it what do you say um i wouldn't buy it but i i think it's if you're a fan of the alien franchise i would assume you are going to buy it and um if you are just generally like the films then i would say it's a high priority rental okay excellent and um thank you and the other thing you you saw shin godzilla is that right yeah, that was great. Um, have I not talked about that on the show before? I can't remember. I did watch I, that on the airplane as well. Um, yeah, I, I thought so. I had talked about it in the past. I don't remember, but yeah, it's great. I love it. I mean, it's not... Um, I, I I do like the American... Most recent American version better as a film. This is... Um, people joke around. It's a lot of... Bo- it's mostly boardrooms and people moving chairs around in boardrooms and stuff. That's, that's kind of a joke and a flip. And the first 20 minutes of that are maybe that, and they actually kind of rough. It's a joke in the film, I think too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, but the film is about, it's about bureaucracy, I think to a large degree. And it's about how 
governments and organizations deal with uh, like a, a natural disaster type of situation in a way that is based in fear and self-preservation more than what is best for wow. the people they're in charge of um, Neat. keeping safe. Do they have my favorite scenario where it's like, um, you know, the, the powers that be behind the scenes in the boardroom planning how they're going to react, what they're going to do about this situation. I mean, I love those scenarios. That's, that's maybe 75% of the film. Oh, I got to see it then. I love Gus that. Gus not an active participant in this story in the way he is in the American Godzilla that came out. I can't remember what year it was. That's why I'm not saying, but it was a 2014? 2014, yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, I think, you know, Godzilla is yes. a much more active participant in that film, and the stakes feel a lot higher on a personal level because they give us these human characters that are directly dealing with the, the tragedy. This is very removed in terms of dealing with the monster because, like I, like I mentioned, it's all in the boardroom. It's all the prime minister of Japan and all of his advisors, his cabinet, and scientists all trying to decide how should we handle this tried like how do should we handle this natural disaster essentially cool. <clears throat> and that's what most of the movie is okay. and um, godzilla himself is simply a force of nature he just gets out of the ocean and walks through japan <laughs> but um the way there's some really clever references for fans of the of godzilla he goes through some transformations let's say during the film that fans of the franchise will recognize and appreciate and it's really clever and kind of cool and just fun it's, yeah. it's a lot of fun but it's not like um really scary other than just scares you about the way governments may, may operate <laughs> right okay it, what, what would it be i see it's not rated what would it be rated on the mpaa if you had to guess oh geez i'm trying to remember I, you know it's in japanese with subtitles and i watched it on the airplane so it may have been edited for content as okay, well Okay, gotcha <laughs> um, but uh you know um i don't remember there being any Thing too objectionable in terms of language, and I think that's the only thing that it could be rated R for. There's no, there's a lot of big monster kaiju violence, but there's no like, <laughs> there's no, like people's heads being ripped off, kind of like bloody, gory violence. Um, you know, so it's pretty removed. I you can almost write a PG in some ways, wow, okay. except for, you know, content-wise, a child would not enjoy this because it's a lot of, like I say, bureaucracy and right. Stuff like that, but um, but you know, I, I would I could easily see getting a PG or PG thirteen. Just to clarify, real fast, the Alien Covenant version was that the airplane version you saw, or did you have the Blu Ray? It was. It was the it was the airline version. So oh, okay, because because yeah, they account for. Is there new? Let me ask you this: Is there that. nudity in the airline version? In, in the airline I mean, version, <laughs> in the yeah, yes, there is. Like a lot or a little? Um, a, a little compared to other the shower, the shower scene. Yeah, the shower scene, but but the gore is is you know that's why I, su I was surprised at what you were saying because it's pretty hardcore on gore and violence. Gore. Yeah, I mean they they show like things bursting out of backs and spines and like all that was in there. Okay, I think um, the only the thing that I'm talking about that I, the stuff I think is the most scary about the alien films with the xenomorph is the tension 
and the acid dripping out of a mouth that's burning through the floor and it's getting closer to you or Mm -hmm. something scampering down a passageway at you. And they just didn't have those types of scenes in it. (laughs) All right. And by the way, what did you rate uh, Shin Godzilla? Sorry, I'm jumping all over the place. That's an eight for me. An eight. Okay, great. I recommend people especially if you're a if you're an old school Godzilla fan I think it's an absolute must see like you're gonna love this if you're someone who doesn't really know much about Godzilla it, it's gonna be a lower priority because you're just you're not gonna really appreciate what they've done with the character and you would really have to appreciate the uh, the bureaucracy stuff okay. to care about the if you liked the um, American version and you're curious about seeing a Japanese version, I would say this would be a, a decent one to start with if you don't want to go back through all the back catalog and you don't know where to begin, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, this, will, this will give you an idea. It's kind of nice because they did update the monster a little bit. Like it's it, the transformations the monster goes through. They did some really cool stuff visually. So I think this will give you an idea if you want to go watch all the old films. I, I gotcha. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for uh, covering those for us. Those are great mini reviews. Okay. I think that just about wraps up episode 128 of Horror Movie Podcast. Thanks for listening and for sticking with us all this time. It was a really fun episode. I love episodes like this personally. I hope the listeners do too. Um, Dave. I'm so happy you were here and stayed up late with us. Uh, tell the listeners where they can catch up with you and hear more of your work. Absolutely. Uh, real quick first, and I didn't mention it before I meant to, but you know, J- Josh had mentioned how I sent him an email. Uh, one thing I did regret was that I quoted, you know, an email about maybe not going to Alaska. I did quote Werner Herzog in that email, <laughs> which probably was not the smartest move because Werner Herzog has put himself in danger pretty much every movie he's ever made. <laughs> probably wasn't my wasn't the best idea. But anyway, um, you can check me out at dvdinfatuation.com. Uh, still counting down there. I think I'm at, uh, as of this recording, 72 movies to go. Um, and then uh, take out all the 31 for October. So, uh, yeah, it's it's 2017 is going to be the year. Thank goodness. Um, I, yeah, definitely. Uh, you see me um, over Twitter at DVD Infatuation, uh, Facebook page as well. I'm on Instagram even. Um, not often, but I'm over there also. And uh, other podcasts, uh, We Deal in Lead, the Universal Monsters cast, and uh, Land of the Creeps with Greg Amortis and Field Hatchet, uh, Jesse Robbins. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. And what about you, Wolfman Josh? Where can they find you? Get in touch with me on social media at Icarus Arts. Well, I'm on Twitter, and Instagram, and Facebook. If you if you add me on Facebook, send me a little message as well, so I know you're a listener. Because sometimes I don't add random people just because there's weirdos on Facebook. But <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, also, Movie Streamcast is getting going again. I have completely um, not done my diligence with that podcast, especially as we got Universal Monsters cast really kicked into gear. Um, so Movie Streamcast is is getting up and running again just in time. You, can you guess what the thing that spurred me into Activity J is? <laughs> the new Survivor season oh, begins boy. tonight as there of this go. recording. <laughs> so um, watch out for that. Universal Monsters cast has been a ton of fun. I don't know what happened while I was out of town with 
if episodes got posted or not. We recorded two episodes right before I left town. I hope Kate. I got don't know done. that. I don't know that any of them have been posted yet. Okay. We have two podcasts in the bank that should be coming out very soon where we cover the Universal Mummy sequels. So we're talking about um, all of the films that came out after the the original, uh, all the Universal films that came out after the original Mummy movie. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun. Four movies. And um, did we have guests for that? Yes, we did. We had Dark Mark and... Nice. Liz, aka Station from the Sci-Fi Podcast, the bride. who is known as the Bride. Exactly. She's right. right. I'm a um, big fan. Mm-hmm. And then upcoming that we have not yet recorded, but is coming soon. And I, this was initially planned to be timed with the release of the Blu-ray of the Mummy. We were going to talk about all the non-universal Mummy movies that we liked, and and then kind of revisit this year's Mummy and kind of with some time having passed to see how we feel about it now, essentially. And we had some big hitters on that episode that will be coming out. Uh, it was Scott Wampler from Birth Movies Death, who's a big time Creature of the Black Lagoon fan and movie critic. And one of the guys who's the head of stuff over at Mondo um, is going to be on the show as well. So that should be a lot of fun. And again, The Bride will be returning for that episode. So MovieStreamCast.com, UniversalMonstersCast.com, at Icarus Arts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I'd love it if people also check out the Sci-Fi Podcast. They just did their uh, Salt Lake City Comic-Con uh, beat, and they're going to have some coverage coming to you from there, which would be really interesting. And then the Geek, oh. the GeekCast Live Podcast, I don't know if the, the listeners of this show have ever heard those guys but i mean if you're into geek culture like if you play i don't know dungeons and dragons and risk and whatever else they do over there like i i i I, sometimes i listen to their show it's always hilarious but half the time i'm lost because like i mean they they really they they do the deep cuts and it's a lot of fun and then that's because uh you're a dork not a geek yeah yeah there's a there's a distinction there yeah And then there's Retro Movie Geek, which is a different show. That's uh, our friend Joel Robertson there and Peter and the crew. I mean, there's a, I, I love those guys. They, they do movies that are 20 years old or older. And so yeah. that you can get your nostalgia fix there. And they end up covering horror a lot. And especially in October, they do their yeah. Spooky Flicks Fest, which I yes. freaking love that. Yeah. And they do a lot of coverage. In fact, I would argue... I, they probably do more coverage in October than we do. I mean, in terms of like actual properties, like films that they review, we, we may have longer shows total, but I think they cover more things throughout the month of October for horror. Yeah, their their show is shorter, but they, they get a lot of coverage done. Like a ton of coverage. I don't know how they do it. It's hilarious. But I, lo- I love those guys, yeah. All three of us have been guests on previous incarnations of mm-hmm. spooky flicks less than we'll probably show up somewhere on there this year as well it, it's one of my favorite things of the year to be honest with you and then movie podcast weekly is my my little baby um <laughs> and it's messed up <laughs> it, it's all messed up <laughs> like, like, but uh they're dead they're all messed up no it's weird and um <laughs> silly and kind of funny so i hope you check that out too 
I wanted to encourage people who are new listeners. We know you're out there. If you don't know, every October we do what we're doing with the Child's Play franchise. So if you go to horrormoviepodcast.com and you look on the sidebar, you'll find links to the entire Halloween franchise, Friday the 13th franchise, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, the Scream franchise. You'll find crossover franchise reviews for Pumpkinhead and Phantasm that we've done with other podcasters. Uh, and a whole lot of other great stuff on there. Uh, we also, last year, we did 80 slashers. So we spent the entire month of October covering the entire 1980s <laughs> slasher movie. Yes, yeah. with Greg Amortis. Huge. Loved it. Right. Yep. Loved that freaking series. That was amazing. Okay. We love your comments. So get involved in the horror movie podcast community. You can leave a comment in the show notes for episode 128 here, or you can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. Got a few voicemails from Adam. And I love like, you know, I don't want to pick favorites, but I'm just saying his voicemails are some of my favorite voicemails ever. I love these. I need to get them from Google, as I've said before. And I'm going to, Adam, don't worry. Um, But I read some of the the transcript (laughs) that came through for his last one. And man, that guy makes me smile. I'm a big Adam fan. Um, Also, we have, as people have been discovering, they let us know about this. uh, Our back archives of um, the weekly horror movie podcast, which has like 26 episodes. And then Horror Metropolis, which has like 10 episodes. So there's 36 other episodes that you may not have heard. That's at horrormoviepodcast.com. And of course, all 128 shows of ours at horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free on iTunes and leave us a review. We're also on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast as well as Instagram. I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find Fred's music at FrederickIngram.com. And I also want to thank Kagan Breitenbach for his reworking of Fred's original theme. He put some extra orchestration there that we love. And you can find Kagan's work at KaganBreitenbach.com. Those will be linked in the show notes. And I think that's it for episode 128. We thank you for listening and join us again next Friday for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies.